Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, no housekeeping today. I'm going to jump right into it. Today I'm speaking with Adam Grant. Adam is an organizational psychologist who teaches at the Wharton Business School, where he has been the top-ranked professor for seven straight years. He is a leading expert on bringing social science into the workplace, and he's the author of four New York Times best-selling books, including Give and Take, Originals, Option B, and Power Moves. He also hosts the Work Life podcast in association with TED, and he's a repeated TED speaker. Anyway, the list of his academic distinctions is long, and we get into some of his core interests. In this episode, we talk about how teams work effectively. We talk about the nature of power, personality types, and what Adam has described as the fundamental styles of interaction, giving, taking, and matching. Uh, We talk about the critical skill of saying no, creativity, resilience. We cover the strange case of Jonas Salk, which is surprising. And then I browbeat Adam for, I don't know, a good long time about mindfulness, and he proves a very good sport. Anyway, I found it a very useful conversation, and I hope you do as well. And now I bring you Adam Grant. I am here with Adam Grant. Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. There's a lot to talk about. I have been getting deep into your material. Before we talk about any of your books and other areas of interest, how do you summarize your career? And and I guess the one setup point I would make is that you are a much celebrated academic, but you, you actually have a kind of more obviously entrepreneurial and sort of breaking of the mold approach to your career at this point. I mean, you, you consult with a lot of companies, you, you're visible in a way that many academics aren't. And so I'm just wondering how you think about your career and how you got into your pile of interests. So I, I fell in love with psychology when I was an undergrad and was just fascinated by the idea that you could take the tools of science and apply them to human behavior. And I knew I, knew I was interested in it. I had no idea where I wanted to take it. And um, my freshman year of college, I was in the middle of a bunch of psych classes and I ended up taking an advertising sales job. And I was horrible at it. I had, I think, a group of clients who had a 95% renewal rate. Mm-hmm. And I called up a bunch of them my first week and uh, I had zero contracts. <laughs> they all turned out. <laughs> uh, and three people demanding their money back from the right. previous year. Right. <laughs> so it, was, it was really bad. And um, I'd read uh, Robert Cialdini's book on uh, persuasion yeah. for one of my psych classes. And I immediately started applying some of the principles. And I got better at the job. And I started to, to see all the ways that psychology was useful at work. And then the next year, I got promoted into this manager role where I had to, I had to hire a team and I had to motivate them. And I had a, a seven-figure budget as a 19-year-old. And uh, I just I found myself using everything I was learning in psychology to, to try to get better at work. And I think eventually what clicked for me is that <clears throat> there's so much good insight in, in the social sciences that's just not useful in the world. And I feel like most of us spend the majority of our waking hours at work. And yet so many people don't find what they do in their jobs meaningful or motivating. And I wanted to fix that. And so I guess I deliberately chose an applied field where, you know, instead of being discouraged from, from doing work that, that was useful to people, I would actually be encouraged to do that. So here we are. Right, right. And so you're your PhD is in organizational psychology? Guilty, or, yes. Yeah, okay. Does that overlap at all with operations research or are they, are these different? Very little. Things? There are a few okay. people who bridge the two. Uh-huh. Um, but 
I did, so I did my PhD in a psych department and a bunch of my classes were in a business school sort of studying management, but most of my training was kind of like, think about it as social and personality psychology applied to work where we take your job and the organizational culture that surrounds you really seriously. So what do we know about work and career and power and influence? I mean, obviously this is a very big question, but I want to go into this area. What do we know based on the social science that is most actionable, most important to know, and is therefore most useful in people's lives? Where do you want to start? Let's start with this. Let's start with a a noun like a person's career or work. What advice do you have? What do you think you, you know as a result of being a specialist in this area that the average person might not know? That's, that's funny. That's the question my students ask all the time, oh, yeah? and I never know how to answer it. But I think I, I think I have something based on years of trial and error on that. So I think when most people choose jobs, they choose based on the nature of the work, and they choose based on the status of the organization, you know, holding constant factors like pay, for example. Right. And I think there's a, there's a big misfactor there, which is culture. We know we have decades of evidence that the culture of the organization that you join has as much impact on your happiness, your success, and even your career trajectory as the actual work itself or, you know, as, you know, characteristics of the job that you take. And yet we don't know, we don't know how to consider that because culture is messy, right? It's hard to measure. It's hard to recognize. Sometimes we get conflicting cues. And so I guess what I would, what I would suggest is for anybody who's looking for practical advice on how to Basically, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to interview a company. Mm -hmm. Once they give you the job, right, you have to say, is this a place where I can be successful and where I can flourish? And if you ask about what the culture is like, you get a bunch of platitudes back. People will say things like, oh, we value integrity and excellence. Well, every other company claims that too, right? I think where you really learn about a culture is you ask people to tell a story about something that happened in their workplace that would not happen anywhere else. And if you ask a bunch of people in the same organization that question, you can start to recognize patterns in the stories. Mm -hmm. So there's a classic study on this where, you know, everybody thinks their own organization is unique, but then you hear the same roughly seven stories over and over again. So people will tell stories about how the little person can get to the top or not, right? Or about how the big boss is human or about, will I get fired if I make a mistake? And if you break down all these stories, what you see is that fundamentally they're about, is this organization a safe place to work? Is it a fair place to work? And can I make a dent around here? Can I have an impact or an influence? And those are the the things people really care about in a culture. And so I think that anybody who's choosing a job ought to be asking those questions, gathering the stories and and trying to get to the bottom of, okay, what, what does this place mean in terms of safety, justice, and control and impact? Right. Now, what would you say to someone who's running a distributed team? Because in tech, there are many companies. I mean, like, so I, I now have a team for the first time in my life, and they're virtually all long distance. And so there's not the same kind of cohesive culture because no one's showing up to an office. And there are huge companies like this. I remember talking to Matt Mullenweg, who, who started WordPress. WordPress. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's got something like 11 people in an office and, you know, a thousand times that distributed. What's, is, is that just a, a filter that will select for people who don't need all of the trappings of culture? Or how do we think about that? It might be. I think that, though, a lot of people find substitutes for culture. So, you know, if your organization is distributed and you don't feel like, you know, you have clear values or norms or a sense of community because you don't interact with those people very often, you tend to find it then instead in your profession, right? Mm -hmm. So in tech, you find that, you know, groups of engineers tend to spend a lot of time together, even if they work at different organizations. Even if they're not in a co-working space, right? What they're trying to do often is say, hey, 
we want to build a culture around our profession where we have you know a set of beliefs that are important to us and a set of practices that we try to stick to and then maybe improve over time and i think if if that's the world you live in i think most people want to feel like they're part of an organization where they can make a bigger contribution than if they were just working solo right. and i see culture as mostly a force that reduces friction in in doing that right because so much of the collaboration and coordination we do causes us when we work with other people to become less than the sum of our parts and I feel like part of what we're, we're trying to do in building an organizational culture is to say, okay, how do we, uh, we get people on the same page in terms of what their mission, their values are, their ways of working together? And hopefully we can do that in such a way that then when we work together, we actually accomplish things together that we couldn't solo. And so I guess I'd say concretely, if you're working in a distributed team, one of my favorite new practices is to write a user manual for how mm. to work with you effectively. Have you ever done this, Seth? No, no. I learned about this, actually. Um, I think my wife should write that manual. Well, that, this is actually one of the key insights, right, is, is you want people who know you well to write the manual for right, you. Right. But it's, it's stunning to me that when you buy a computer or a car, there's a manual for how to operate it. But the other people you work with who are way more complex than any piece of technology or machinery, there's no user manual for how to work with them. So um, there's a, a group of managers at Bain, uh, the consulting firm, who, who did this really well. They said, all right, I'm going to go to all my teams that I've worked with for a long time, and I'm going to have them write the one pager for what brings out the best in me, what brings out the worst in me, what would you want to know if today were day one of working with me, and what are my blind spots? Mm. And then we're, we're going to collect all those, we're going to create one document around it, and then I'm just going to share it with anybody who works with me in the future. Wow. And I think it's such an easy way to try to make you know, sort of, I guess, a collaboration a little bit more predictable and also not push each other's buttons. Interesting. Is there more that we know about the variables that conspire to make collaboration more than the sum of the parts rather than less than the sum of the parts? Yeah, I, I think we know less than we should. I think the first, I mean, the, the starting point for me is that a lot of collaboration shouldn't exist in the first place. Mm. So one of, my, uh, one of my first mentors was Richard Hackman, who spent a uh, half century studying teams. And he did it because he hated working with other people. And he chose this career where he wanted to figure out how, how does anybody ever work together and actually, you know, not only do it well, but sort of enjoy it. And um, he, he had a fun philosophy for what an organizational psychologist does, which is you take all the jobs that you wish you had, had pursued and you get to live them vicariously by studying them. And so he wanted to, uh, to be a spy. And so he went and studied U.S. intelligence agencies and how to improve their effectiveness. Mm. He was interested in being um, a musician at one point. So he studied symphony orchestras and how to increase the quality of music they played. He loved flying, and so he studied airline cockpit crews. And so he was, he was constantly looking across these different worlds to figure out what made a team great. And one of his most basic findings was that for the most part, teams fail when you give them tasks that are better done by individuals. Like, for example, mm. writing a book. Really bad idea to have multiple people write a book together. Right. Um, especially more than two, especially if they don't share a voice, and there's not kind of one consistent narrator, right? And I think that, that the first question to ask is, is this a task that really requires interdependent collaboration? Or is it a task that's better done by individual people working separately? Yeah, that, that rings a few bells. So what about power? Again, we're just leaping from noun to noun. You now consult with a lot of powerful people. H how do you think about power in the year 2019? Well, I guess, you know, what, what I was talking growing up is that power corrupts. 
I remember in middle school <laughs> looking at the the you know the poster on the wall and it was the the Lord Acton quote that said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. They had that up in your school? Yeah, in my middle school classroom. Huh. And I had That's the same teacher for three years, so I stared at it for three years. And I don't know if I was skeptical of it then, but there was something about it that didn't sit right with me. I think what it, what I found really bothersome about it was that it gave it gave individuals no agency. You know, it was like, okay, if 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 a good person becomes powerful, you know, all hope is lost. And that that just didn't ring true to me, I guess, intuitively. And, you know, fast forward a couple of decades, we now have a growing body of evidence in psychology that yes, power can corrupt, but I think more often it reveals. So, yeah. you know, one of one of the things we see pretty consistently is that the way people use power depends on their pre-existing values. And, you know, I I, I think there are lots of good examples of this. You know, we've we've controlled experiments that show it, but the the pattern looks a lot like I think of two lawyers uh, who got into public office, and one of them was was threatened to be disbarred in the first case he ever tried, and the judge said, "I doubt that you have the ethical qualifications to practice law." And that lawyer's name was Richard Nixon, mm -hmm. uh, right? right? It's not so clear that power corrupted him. I think he was corrupt to begin with, and then he ended up using power in a corrupt way once he he gained the highest office in America. There's another lawyer who was so ethical that he ended up refusing a client because he said, I believe you're guilty and therefore I cannot defend someone that, you know, mm -hmm. that I, I don't believe is innocent. And that lawyer also became president. His name was Abraham Lincoln, right? Right. And I think that, you know, to me, the, the arc of what we've learned in psychology is, is very often, you know, it's, it's not that power necessarily corrupts people, although it can be a powerful force, right? It, it can be hard to resist some of the temptations of power. The intoxication as Nietzsche described it, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that more often people end up morphing power to serve their own ends and that it's not so much that power corrupts people, it's that people corrupt power. Yeah, you sort of find out what people really want when they have more tools with which to get it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also um, one of the consistent findings in psychology is that when you give people power, they become disinhibited because mm -hmm. they think, look, I've, you know, I've, I've gained now the freedom to express who I am and what I want, I don't, I don't have to put on an act anymore. Mm. And so, you know, Caro, after, uh, after doing his, his deep biography of, of Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, that's on uh, my desk. I want to read that. It's, he, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a great read. It's, it's a, a long read. It's a major commitment. Yeah, uh, yeah you, you, like you don't go into that pages. lightly. Yeah. <laughs> but one of his observations was that the power never corrupts. It always reveals. And I think that, that is one of the things that, you know, I, I don't think one is true and the other is not. But I think that's, a, for me, a fundamental shift about power. Let's, let's give people a little bit of credit, right? Let's say, look, you know, it's possible that if you are a person of decent character and integrity, that, you know, power could bring out the better, better angels of your nature, as, as Lincoln put it. Mm. Yeah, one thing that, again, this, this could be a bit of a caricature, but I feel like I've discovered this in my, in my wanderings among powerful people, that it's not just power. I guess it, it, fame might be a more relevant variable, but at a certain point in a person's career, as they get more powerful and more famous, they seem to surround themselves with people who insulate them from the normal tests of truth. And I mean, just like a, there's less re reality testing going on. And so you, you can meet people who you get the sense have never heard a strong argument against their cherished ideas. Yeah. And it, it, it can be a bit surprising. They're just surrounded by yes men and women. and they have been told they're geniuses so often that I'm thinking of one case in particular, I, I won't name him, but it's just 
you get there is a kind of delusion where you've been drinking your own publicity for long enough that you're out of touch with reality. I've seen that happen more times than I'd like to admit. And, you know, I think to me, it, it suggests poor judgment on the part of a leader, mm. right? That you ought to know that one of the dangers of gaining power is that, yeah, I've, I'm sure you've heard leaders <laughs> remark at some point in their career, like, huh, it's so interesting. As I gained status, I suddenly got funnier. Yeah. Right, <laughs> well, right. How did that happen? Yeah. And you have to see that going in. You know that your judgment of, of other people's character actually gets worse as you become more powerful because they are more motivated to impress you and to flatter you. And if you recognize that, then you set up systems to counteract that. So yeah, I think the mistake that a lot of leaders make is they gain power and they say, I need a support network because I know my success depends on being able to multiply all my talents. And so I need a whole group of people around me who are going to extend my work, who are going to strengthen it, who are going to reinforce it. And I think what they overlook is they also need a challenge network, right? Mm. A group of people who believe in their potential enough that they want to tear their work apart to try to make it better. And, you know, it's, it's definitely scary when <laughs> I, I, uh, I've seen a couple of leaders who, you know, occasionally would walk into their, their office and they say, good morning. And you could almost hear the people wanting to say in response, great point. Right. Like, yeah. Nope, nope. Too soon. Too soon. There wasn't actually anything said yet. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I think that's, that's how most group think starts. Okay. So let's get into give and take because we, we've, well, we've almost uh, landed on it already. Summarize your, your thesis there and, and the, the different personality types, or would you call them personality types? Or they're just, it's, it's, and I'll let you explain it. But the differences in people and their styles here are orthogonal to like the big five personality traits, right? Yeah, so, they well, seem to be. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So there's actually, there's really interesting. So, you know, we think about the big five as the, the major dimensions of personality, right? So, you know, how extroverted versus introverted are you? Where do you stand on emotional stability versus how reactive are you to stressful events? How conscientious and dependable are you? How agreeable, disagreeable are you? Which I want to talk more about, mm. uh, maybe my favorite big five trait. And then how open versus traditional are you in your thinking? And there's been, um, we see these traits exist in most cultures around the world. That leads us to think they're pretty fundamental, right? Um, and there's even pretty good biogenetic evidence that, you know, that we can trace to, hey, there's a, there's a heritability coefficient that's attached to each of these. And, you know, these, these traits, they, they exist in us, they matter, they're kind of hard to change. But we thought for a long time there were just kind of five, right? And then most of the, the additional traits that were discovered, we could kind of fit under the umbrella of an existing trait. And recently there's, um, there's growing evidence that there may be a sixth factor of personality, which is selfishness. Mm-hmm. And I found this really exciting because for the past 15 years, I've been studying individual differences in your motivation to help others versus advance your own interests. And so, you know, not surprising to me that that's emerging, but I don't think about these as personality types in part because what I'm really interested in here is, is your values. When you interact with another person, what are your goals and intentions? And I was struck by evidence from around the world. This has been shown in North America, Southeast Asia. Western Europe, but also um, in some pretty remote places like the African Maasai, that there are three fundamental styles of interaction that, that you see emerge again and again. And so on the extremes, I've, I've come to call them givers and takers. So the givers are the people who are always asking, you know, what could I do for you? Takers are the opposite, right? It's all about what can you do for me? And most of us, we don't want to be too selfish or too generous. And so when we meet somebody new, we choose a third style as our default, which is called matching. Right. If I'm a matcher, I say, hey, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And I think of these as styles rather than, than personality traits, because I think these are choices we make in every interaction. 
So, you know, I might be a giver when I'm mentoring a junior person. I might be more of a taker when I'm negotiating my salary with my employer, uh, where, you know, my goal is definitely not to, to make sure that they win that negotiation, mm -hmm. right? And then I might be a matcher if somebody who's maybe a rival of mine or a competitor asks me to share some information and say, hey, wait a minute, quid pro quo. And yet, I think we also all have a, a dominant style. And that's what, what I've been finding in, in my studies over the years is that there's a way that we prefer to treat most of the people most of the time. Mm. And I think that style has real consequences. Yeah. So in reading the book, I'm sure this is the universal experience of people who read it. But the first thing the reader does is try to figure out which style he or she owns. And I'm sure there's some self-deception at play in, in the conclusions people draw there. But honestly, I think I, I tend to be a giver in most respects, but I'm a kind of battered giver and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very busy giver, right? So I noticed, yeah. I noticed that a few things are happening now. One is there are some salient cases where I feel like I've been taken advantage of yep. and it's sort of mattered. So now I'm more on guard in certain situations. I, I view my past self as a naive giver, right? Yeah. So as a kind of a mark. And I have to some degree outsourced my disagreeableness and my disposition not to give reflexively to, you know, a manager, a lawyer. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's yeah. a layer between me and reality and all the takers of the world. And that, to some degree, it could, I'm sure many people experience this, it can be a kind of good cop, bad cop relationship where you get to kind of maintain your dominant style because you have an asshole who, who's working for you, right? <laughs> I hope they're not an asshole, by the way. I hope they're just a, a matcher who believes yes. deeply in justice right. and is trying to punish all the takers. Okay, yeah. Well, that, that, that is, I think that is the, the right recipe. And I guess there's one of the piece here. I, I, I noticed this. I noticed the liability of being a giver. At least I, this is what I imagined had happened here. I met a guy who kind of was offering his services to collaborate with me on, on the meditation app that I, I recently released. And he was clearly somebody who, at least to hear him describe himself, was a huge giver, had been a huge giver, but felt just mightily burned by his previous encounters with people where he had essentially been instrumental in building a billion-dollar company and was uncompensated for it. So he's like giving, wow. he's giving good ideas to people and, you know, was just unremunerated, apparently. And so, but so his now, his, his style of approach to me was like out of an SNL sketch in terms of its defensiveness. I mean, it was like he basically black boxed every piece of advice he could have given me. Like there was nothing, he, he deliberately wouldn't add value to yep. anything in a conversation because he didn't, he wanted, to, he wanted to monetize everything. The thing was so transactional that it was like a comedy sketch. And I, you know, I got off the phone with this guy and, and there was just, it would have been so exhausting to figure out how to work with him. And yet I can see, having had a few collisions of this sort, I can see how people could get there where, they, where you just feel like you're sort of open to the point where you're a really bad match for the people you happen to be around because yeah. you, they just, they, they take everything, they take all the credit or they take all the opportunities. And then some bear trap shuts within you and you have a different style there. And then in that mode, it seems clearly toxic and, and unpragmatic. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's really interesting to ask the question of how do people become takers? And, you know, I think some of that, obviously, there, there are sociopaths out there who mm. just don't care about other people. But I think more commonly, at least when I've, when I've studied this, you, you do see that there's a whole subset of takers who have just been taken advantage of one too many times, who used to be givers, 
And, you know, they kind of got burned and said, all right, I, I got to put myself first or else nobody else will. And I, I think there, there's actually a name for, um, for, for that kind of um, almost overcorrection, right? Mm -hmm. From, you know, somebody who was too self-sacrificing, too selfless to now being maybe too selfish and transactional. There's a psychologist, George Kelly, who called it slot rattling. And it's the, it's the idea of, okay, there's a, there's a particular trait and I'm on, you know, I think I'm on a bad spot along that spectrum. And I find that out. And then all of a sudden I go to the opposite extreme. Mm. But then I find out that's not good either. And I spend all this time trying to figure out, okay, how do I get in the optimal zone? And Kali's observation was there is no optimal zone. What you need to do is add other traits to your, your field of vision. And so, you know, one would be flexibility, right? To say, okay, right. it's not inherently good to be a taker. It's not inherently good to be a giver either. There are situations where each might be appropriate and I need to be more, you know, more judicious about deciding which one is right. In this world, I would say one of the mistakes that, that we make that, that I made in the early days of my research is I thought we were dealing with one continuum where takers on one end were selfish, givers on the other end were generous. But when I measured independently, I surveyed thousands and thousands of people and, and gave them a series of questions about how motivated they were to help others and then how motivated they were to achieve their own goals. And also then got their, their colleagues to rate them. So we had really nice 360 data. I found that, that self-concern and other concern were completely orthogonal. So how mm -hmm. much you care about other people and how, how much you care about your, yourself are uncorrelated. And uh, so then... Well, so let's just linger on that. Yeah, so how is that possible given that in so many situations there's a zero-sum contest between the two? So I think the, the key is that in a given situation, right, you often will face a trade-off. Mm. But if you aggregate all the situations across your life, you can often find ways that, that it's not zero-sum, right? So this is one of the reasons right. people yeah. love relationships as opposed to transactions is, yeah. oh, I can, you know, I can help you and it feels like maybe it costs me something in this moment. But over time, there's a chance that we both benefit from the relationship. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I was taking a narrow view of that because as I've often said, there's a place where selflessness and selfishness, wise selfishness coincide because you, you realize that you yeah. want to be surrounded by happy people. You want good relationships. Love is one of your primary values. And then all boats rise with that tide. That's the goal. And you know, it's, it's interesting because it's been studied a lot in negotiations. So there's a meta-analysis that Karsten DeDrew led of every study that's ever been done of going into a negotiation, what are your motivations? And then how well do you do relative to your counterpart? Mm. And the overall finding is that the best negotiators are high in concern for their, themselves and high in concern for others simultaneously. And what that allows them to do is, is immediately figure out, okay, what does the person across the table from me need? And how do I help them get that? But then also make sure I get what I needed out of this interaction too. It's very different. If you're negotiating with someone and you get what you want clearly at their expense, right? They feel burned. Yeah. You're sabotaging any future relationship there. Done. So, yeah. Yeah, it's over. And there was, a, there was one of my favorite studies of negotiators actually measured their cognitive ability. So they took an IQ test hmm. before negotiating. And then the question was, do smarter negotiators do better? And the answer was no, that the smarter you were, the better your counterpart did in the negotiation. And some of that might be because more intelligent people are more likely to take the long view. And say, look, you know, yeah, I might, you know, quote unquote, lose this negotiating negotiation today, but that's not ultimately the only test of of you know whether we built a good relationship or whether there's a way we could help each other in the future. But also, the smarter you were, the more able you were to identify ways of benefiting the other person that cost you nothing. 
Right. And I think this is one of the the kind of basic mistakes people make is they think, oh, well, every act of generosity has to be at a personal expense. I'm like, no, that's altruism. I don't think anyone should be altruistic because it's not sustainable. I think what we should do is say, let's look for ways of helping others that don't require us to sacrifice ourselves. And we can all do that. Well, yeah, you can sacrifice one thing, let's say time, but to your mutual advantage. Yeah. So, although there's, there's one case, did you write an op-ed about not responding to emails? Do I have that correct? <laughs> I wrote an op-ed yeah, okay. about why people should be responsive to reasonable emails. You must have gotten some pain for that. I did. So, yeah. I responded I, to all of them. Yeah, okay. Well, you can <laughs> respond to me now. So, so this is where I think I disagree because so now I'm in a position. So I, I once woke up with 50,000 unread emails oh, in my geez. inbox, right? So I had to declare email bankruptcy, obviously. Understood. And, and but I, I still get a lot of cold emails, and I actually don't feel. I, I so your argument, just state your case. What 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 point did you make in that op-ed? I don't email? think you have to answer cold emails, by the way. Oh, you don't. Okay. No. And I, that's I think how I read your op-ed that that if someone is if someone is writing you a reasonable cold email, it is of necessity rude to not respond to it. Definitely don't feel that way. Oh, okay. I think, and I, by the way, I think this is a, this is a whole different animal for public figures, right? Or people right. who are visible to the point that you could even get 50,000 emails. Right. I think, but my, my general case is that email has evolved to be as essential to communication as a face-to-face interaction or a phone call. And if somebody walked by you in the hallway and said, hello, you wouldn't just snub them, right? Yeah. You, you'd, you'd respond to them. And if somebody left you a voicemail, you'd, most people call them back. And I think some people have evolved this idea that, well, email is different. And if somebody writes me a message, I don't have to respond to it. And if that's the norm in your workplace, fine. If that's the norm in your field, totally okay. The problem is that because so much communication is being done on email today, it's mostly taken as a sign either that you're not conscientious, Mm -hmm. which of all the personality traits in the big five is the best predictor of job performance. And so if you're judged as somebody who's disorganized and unreliable, that's generally not good for your career, right? Right. And then also it's, it sends a signal that you don't care, right? That the, the person who took the time to write you just doesn't matter to you. And neither of those signals, you wouldn't want to send either of them, right? If, if you have a job, right? you have the luxury of not having a job. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're probably protected from all this. <laughs> I, I've worked very hard not to have a job. Uh, and it served you well. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think that it's fine to, to exercise judgment on any individual email that comes in. I think if, if somebody has a habit of just not responding, they're taking a risk in, you know, in a digital age. Mm-hmm. And, I think that, you know, that what I mean is you should have a hierarchy, right, of, of, okay, so in my world, I'm responsive to family first, students second, colleagues third, everyone else fourth. And, right. you know, that, that, makes, that makes it really easy, right? The, the everyone else category is going to fall by the wayside if I don't, you know, if I haven't gotten through responding to the other groups. Yeah, well, th- this opens the larger topic of, of saying no. And the more the more things are going well, the more you actually need to say no to triage definitely you know, the, the various opportunities. And what I experience with emails that it just it takes there's enough of it that if I were going to be scrupulous about saying no in the most conscientious way, yeah, that w- I, there'd be no time for anything else. I mean, it just takes too long to say no to some of these emails. So that's so if you <laughs> if you sent me an email and you did not get a reply, that this explains what happened. <laughs> So, but how do you think about saying no and, and triaging with respect yeah. to all, so, the, all the demands on your time? I think when I first got into this field, I thought, I, I confused being a giver with saying yes. And the, the whole point of, you know, choosing a set of values where you say, look, I want to be someone who contributes to the lives of others. 
and I enjoy being helpful and I'm happy to do it without strings attached, is you get to choose where you want to have your impact. And so you shouldn't be a slave to other people's priorities, right? At the same time, I'm not of the belief that when you, when you get an email or a request, that's always somebody else's priorities being dumped on you, right? I don't right. know about you, but my inbox is also the place where I get really helpful advice from my colleagues. And I can immediately find the answer to some esoteric question where I'm looking for a data point about it. Right. And so I feel like, you know, in a, in a cosmic matching sense, right? If I ignore email, then, uh, then probably I'm not going to end up getting very helpful responses. But I think that, that saying no is a critical skill for anybody who wants to be generous or anybody who wants, wants to get a lot done. And the way I've come to think about it is you ought to have a set of priorities around who you help, when you help, and how you help. So the who is easy, right? I gave you my list of, of students coming before colleagues. And mm -hmm. that means that if I have a choice in a given day between a fellow professor who wants my feedback on a paper and a student who's looking for some career advice, I'm going to choose the student. And that means I'm comfortable with the student feeling I'm more generous than, than my colleague. Because right. I didn't become a professor to try to be helpful to other professors. I think they'll be okay. Also, if somebody, you know, if somebody has a history or a reputation of selfish behavior and you know, they've kind of proven themselves to be more of a taker, I'd want you to shift into matcher mode. And say, look, I'm not going to reward that behavior. I'm not going to reinforce it. I, I'm going to either not help them or I'm going to make sure that they're paying it back or paying it forward. And then the, the when is, is basically about saying, look, I've got to block out time to get my own stuff done. And too often there's a, there's a temptation, I think, for a lot of people who like to be helpful to prioritize other people's needs ahead of their own. And then they're constantly falling behind on finishing their own work. Yeah. And then the how to me is the most fun is just to be clear and proactive about saying, look, there are certain ways of helping others that I enjoy and that I'm, I'm uniquely good at. And so I'm going to focus on those. And you know, for me, that's, I love sharing knowledge about work and psychology. My favorite cold emails to get are, have you ever seen a study? Fill in the blanks. I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, all these hours that I waste reading these completely trivial and tiny studies might come in handy for somebody else. And I really enjoy connecting people when it's mutually beneficial if there's, there's a way that they could actually help each other. And I feel like I live in this world where I bridge between lots of different fields. And mm. so that's, that's a fun and easy thing to do. How, how do you connect them? Do you, do you send a cold email connecting them as a fait accompli, or do you ask whether they want to be connected to? Depends on the people. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I just sent one yesterday, actually. I hope I I'm said. not telegraphing too much, but you know what style <laughs> I, I would prefer. <laughs> of course. But so, yes, I would say I generally prefer the double opt-in. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, there's a person where I know, look, like they would be insane not to want to make right. this connection. Yeah. And so I'll just make it. So I, I've, I've done that. So I always default to the double opt-in, but on a few occasions where I haven't, where I've just thrown two people together, I have literally said that you would be insane not to want yeah. to know each other. Yeah. And that, like, those are easy to predict. So I, yeah. I had an example of this last year. I was going to, uh, to tape a live podcast episode with Malcolm Gladwell, and we're sitting in the green room beforehand. And he's like, I'm doing this episode uh, of my podcast on um, why you should pull your goalie. And I really want to talk to Sam Harris, but I can't find anyone who knows him. Right. And I'm like, wait, I, I'm sure you know lots of people who know him, but I just met Sam. Like, I think it was a week after we met. Right. And uh, I, I didn't ask you if you wanted to meet him, but I assume like right. in general, you're probably happy to talk yeah, to yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, that was fine. But I apologize. Yeah. Although I landed, he, that connection landed me in the weirdest episode <laughs> of a podcast. Because it was, I don't know if you heard that with the I subsequent did. interview, but it was just, he was interviewing me about home invasions. And, it was uh, fascinating. Okay, it My was, wife and I it, probably it, had a two-hour debate about it right, afterward. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Yeah, but... Uh, anyway, but yeah, topic, I, yeah, I think that it's, it's reasonable to, to assume that if, if there's one person who can help the other, the receiver would be happy to receive that connection. Right. 
to change topics here. What do we know about creativity at this point? I think we know a lot about how to thwart it. I think we know how to undermine it as parents and teachers. I think we know how to stifle it at work. And I think most of what I know about how to unleash it is basically getting the obstacles out of the way. Hmm. So you want to talk about kids, adults, both? Yeah, let's, let's talk about both. And, and well, well, let's focus on creativity, but I actually would like to know how your just understanding of psychology may or may not have affected your parenting. Because that's, oh, that's, it's, gosh. I'm amazed at how little science seeps through into one's daily life. In, I mean, I, I, this is not, you know, I haven't focused on developmental psychology or um, any of this, the, the relevant fields narrowly, but I just know from talking to people like Paul Bloom or you know, people who are closer to those data, yeah. it's amazing how little it, it constrains or uh, inspires our, our parenting. I, I mean, think it's are, one of the most irresponsible apes. things we do as a society. Mm -hmm. Is I mean we we don't educate parents in the most basic knowledge about developmental psychology, right? And I'm I'm kind of torn on that because on the one hand I've you know just as a casual consumer of of that literature, not somebody who's ever really contributed to it, I've learned a lot from it. On the other hand, I never wanted to be one of those psychologists who screwed up our kids, which I feel like is yeah. you know is kind of the norm. But also I've I've been pretty persuaded by the the wealth of evidence on behavioral genetics that says a lot of what we think our parenting affects you are actually shared genes, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, you know, and that's why I say I think it's, it's easy to, to undermine a kid, right? So, you know, not, not being supportive, not, you know, not showing unconditional love, you know, really easy to damage a child, right? We, we have decades of evidence on the, you would know this as a neuroscientist, right, on, on how much harm you can do by depriving children, by exposing them to chronic stress, abuse, poverty, et cetera. But I think if you take out all the bad things that happen to kids, I'm not sure how much upside there is around trying to be the world's best parent, right? Or trying to get it perfect as opposed to just saying, look, we're all going to make mistakes no matter how hard we try at it. But I guess there are a few things that I, I think we ought to be aware of as parents. I think the biggest thing I've learned as a parent, actually, is that a big part of being creative is, uh, is building resilience. Because I think, you know, part of having ideas that are novel is it requires you to face rejection. It makes you feel like you're alone, right? As a, as a nonconformist who's maybe not fitting in. And there's some evidence that the, the most creative kid in a classroom is the least likely to be the teacher's pet. Because, hmm. you know, creative kids are annoying in yeah. class, right? I, yeah. I know even as a teacher of, a, of, of, you know, college students and MBA students that, you know, the ones who are wildly creative, like, they're not quite sticking with the, the lesson plan. And they often want to take the conversation and, you know, onto a tangent. And then I worry that the rest of the class is going to miss out on, you know, the, the, the key concepts we were going to cover. So when I, when I think about all of that, I think that if you are going to be creative, one of the skills that you need early on is you need to be comfortable with disapproval socially. Mm. And I think that one of the ways you, uh, you foster that comfort is you encourage kids to, to think for themselves and recognize that they don't always need the approval of a parental figure in order to, you know, to feel okay. And there, uh, there are some interesting ways to do this, but one, one that I've applied with our kids is I read all this research showing that one of the beliefs that kids need in order to be resilient is they need to feel that they matter. And mattering in, in sociology has three components. One is that other people notice me. Two is they care about me. And three is they rely on me. And I think most parents are pretty good at the first two. Mm -hmm. But we miss out on the third, which is I matter when I feel that other people are counting on me. And I think too many parents let kids be helpless, right? There's mm -hmm. all this discussion now about snowplow parenting where we clear the path for kids as opposed to preparing kids for the path. Right. And so I thought, okay, we've, we're supposed to show our kids that, that we are willing to rely on them. So one of the things I'll do is when I'm nervous before uh, a big speech, let's say, 
I'll actually go to our kids and ask them for advice on how to handle that. Oh, interesting. And, and it's so remind interesting. me, your kids are what ages? So they're 11, 8, and 5. So very young to to imagine they could actually contribute to your well-being in that way. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I don't have high hopes for our five-year-old's yeah. advice on that no, all the no, time. But No, yeah. I know, but just the, the, the fact that you would kind of model that, that uh, reciprocity is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't want them to feel like I'm, you know, I'm needing it, right? right. But I, I want to show them that I value their input. Right. It's a team effort. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the, the great thing about that is, one, I've signaled that I have confidence in their ability to think through, you know, how, do, how would I handle a stressful situation? Mm -hmm. Two, I then get to watch them practice their own problem solving. And so instead of, so a couple, the first time I did this actually uh, was before I, I gave my first talk at TED. And, you know, I talked to our, our oldest and she gave me a bunch of like pretty good tips mm -hmm. and, you know, said, hey, you know, you should, you should think about what, you know, why you're excited to give this speech and who, you know, in the audience it could help. And then a few weeks later, of course, she's in a school play and she's nervous. And instead of me giving her advice, she gets to think for herself and know that she already has some ideas about how to handle that situation. And I, th I think we could, we could give kids those opportunities more often, right? To, instead of telling them how to solve a problem, we ought to give them opportunities to think through the problem themselves and even show them that we're willing to consider their advice. Yeah, that well, that's great. So, where, how does unconditional love mesh with this concept of grit that we have been hearing more about? <laughs> well, it's interesting because Angela Duckworth uh, is a close colleague of mine who put mm -hmm. grit on the map in her research, yeah. and she has found the exact same thing for parenting that I've found for work, which is there's another there's a two by two in the in the work world. I've talked about this in terms of you know giving and taking, and then how agreeable and disagreeable people are. Which, just as a quick aside, I used to assume that being agreeable meant you were going to be a giver. Because, you know, if you're nice and friendly and warm, you're going to be helpful. But the data I've gathered suggests that those are independent and that agreeableness is about on the surface, you know, how pleasant is it to interact with you? Mm -hmm. Whereas giving and taking are, are what, are the, what are those real intentions deep down? And so when you draw the two by two, I've found that often the best leaders are the disagreeable givers who dole out more tough love, who challenge you because they care about you. And Angela has a two-by-two two of parenting that's almost identical, which is how supportive are you? That's your unconditional love factor. Mm -hmm. And then the other axis is how demanding are you? And the, the goal is to be in the high-high cell and say, I am both supportive and demanding. Mm. Now, to your point earlier about situations, it's really hard to be both in one sentence, right? Yeah. But I think over time, grit comes from your kids feeling like you believe in their potential, you care about them and their well-being and success but also you have really high expectations and standards for them. And I don't think those, those things have to be at odds. I think I would like another axis there, which is- We can't see in three dimensions. It's yeah, too complicated. Yeah. What's Builders, the third? Yeah. Which is honesty. I mean, maybe, maybe it collapses down to one of the other two, but people often think that in order to truly be supportive, there are some circumstances where you have to lie to people and you have to tell a white lie in order to not give them a truth which they might find disappointing or, or dispiriting. But, you know, I've been on this hobby horse for more than a decade now. And I find that, and, it's, and I find this as a parent as well, like it's an immense reservoir of confidence interpersonally for the other person to know that you will never lie to them. Yeah. Right. Because then, then when you're, when you're praising them, they know you're not bullshitting them. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I think it's, it's not something that is explicit in, in many people's thinking here. It's just like, like if, if you're just trying to be supportive and demanding by turns to say, to, to say, to take those two variables, 
it's easy to see how the level of honesty may just accidentally fall wherever it falls. That's one of the reasons that I like the disagreeable giver idea, the mm -hmm. language at least, better than demanding and supportive. Right. Because I think at part of the heart of being disagreeable is saying, look, I'm going to tell you the truth that you need to hear, even if you don't want to hear it. Right. And you know, as somebody who, by personality, I, you can probably tell, I skew much more in the agreeable direction. Mm. And I think one of my Achilles heels in my career has been wanting to be liked. One of the things I've tried to learn over time is to say, look, yes, in the short run, it is more painful to, you know, to tell people a hard truth than it is to tell them what seems like a kind lie. But in the long run, that's not creating a foundation where people trust me and where I have integrity. And so I have an aspiration to be more disagreeable and sometimes have overcorrected on that. But mm. I think that, yeah, I mean, there are, this, this goes back to the idea that you want a challenge network, not, not just a support network, right? People who are willing to pick your arguments apart because they, they think it's important for you to get it right. Yeah. Actually, there's one more point on creativity that I think you made in one of your books. I think it's been made elsewhere too, but one of the false assumptions about creativity is that there's just a, a higher quality of work coming out of creative people, whereas it seems yeah. like it's, and correct me if, I, if the research hasn't backed this up, but it seems like there's just a, in most cases, it's just a higher volume of work and then yeah. it's just more at the, the far end of the distribution to choose from. Yeah. The, the, the dominant finding in the creative, creativity literature is the more creative you are, the more bad ideas you have. Mm. And that's just because you generate more ideas. And I think the Dean Simonson, who's a, a very prolific psychologist who studied this pretty extensively throughout history, is Dean, Dean would say that you want to think about creativity as fundamentally Darwinian, that you have what's essentially blind variation, that as a creator, you are too close to the idea and have too little access to you know, the, the taste of your audience or the needs of your field to really judge whether your ideas are any good. And so you have to generate enough blind variation that some of those ideas will be selectively retained. So uh, you look at classical composers, for example, and there's good evidence that one of the distinguishing factors that made Beethoven and Bach and Mozart better than their peers is they generated often not just twice as much work, but 10 times as much work as most other composers. Mm. And what that means is their, their mean composition is not considered greater than you know, lesser musicians, but their peak is higher because they, they had more shots on goal, essentially. Yeah. You can also see this within people's careers, though. So Simonton did an analysis of Thomas Edison's innovations over time, and he found that the periods in which he generated the most patents were also the periods in which he had the best shot at, at a truly influential patent. And that you know, during the same window where he, um, he kind of did the work sort of pioneering the light bulb, whether or not he actually invented it at all, he was also trying to create a um, fruit preservation technique that totally backfired, may have even caused fruit to, to rot faster, mm -hmm. not sure. He created um, a technique for mining iron ore that didn't work, invented a doll so creepy that it scared, uh, scared adults and kids. Right. <laughs> and so you look at that and it's like, okay, how is that the same yeah. inventor? Yeah. But Shakespeare, same thing. You know, same period he was working on some of his greatest hits, like it goes Macbeth. It was was also the time when he wrote Timon of Athens, mm. which nobody thought was any good. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I think there's there's a rule that says you have to generate a sufficient quantity to stumble onto some quality. There, there was an anecdote you tell in Give and Take that I hadn't heard. I was amazed that I hadn't heard it upon reading it. But this goes to the the consequences of being a taker or an apparent taker even in great success. Just the, the story of Jonas Salk oh, uh, and his press conference, 
maybe you can tell that because I, I genuinely hadn't heard it and am amazed given how famous he was and how much he, he appears to have contributed <laughs> to our well-being. It's just a, it's an amazing story. I, I was shocked when I stumbled onto the story. I had no idea because Jonas Salk's a hero, right? Yeah. When, you, when you think about givers, he's, when I think societally, right, great people throughout the past century, he, he was pretty close to the top of my list. And I actually started looking into him because I was interested in writing a chapter about sharing credit. And I thought, oh, a great scientist who did so much good is probably an exemplar. And when I, when I look for stories when I write, I always start with the science and then say, let me find a good example to illustrate it. And so, you know, I had a bunch of studies about credit that I wanted to, to bring to life. And I went to Salk. And I read this really surprising article by a historian that said, you know, Salk was, uh, was asked why he didn't patent uh, his vaccine when he, you know, when he first generated it. And he said, well, you can't patent the sun. You wouldn't patent the sun. Mm. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a public good. It turns out <laughs> it's a lie. Mm. It turns out his vaccine wasn't patentable. And so he was trying to paint himself as this very altruistic guy when in fact the due diligence had been done and uh, a patent was not obtainable because I think the work was not sufficiently novel. Right. So, so that was the first layer. And then I thought, okay, I've got to learn more about this guy. He's obviously a more complicated figure than he seems to be. And uh, I read a whole book. Uh, it, was a biography of, uh, it was a biography of polio, really, but it was sort of a biography of Salk in a way. And uh, I learned a couple of things. One was that he, he would always refuse press interviews because, you know, he was too busy. And then he would allow himself to be cajoled into saying yes. And then, you know, oh, I'm, I'm doing all this important work, but I would, you know, okay, this is, if you really need me, I can talk to you. Again, trying to paint this picture of himself as, as somebody who, who had these very noble ideals. And then the kicker was he had a core lab of people who really did essential work. Without them, there would be, I think, no Salk vaccine. And he snubbed them. He refused to give them credit for the work that they did. When they made the big announcement, they finally had the vaccine available. He didn't mention any of their names and basically fractured his relationship with all these people. Yeah, they, they left in tears from that press conference. Apparently. Yeah, yeah, actually crying. Yeah. And these were people who toiled away trying to work on a problem that was so critical to humanity and just wanted their boss to say their name. Mm. And he wouldn't do it. And it was apparently really important to him that he was the, the sole inventor. And, you know, again, not even an invention per se. but. There's this whole debate about whether he then was blackballed from the National Academy of Sciences because of that or because his work was too applied and people didn't see it as, as making a basic contribution to knowledge. But I think that we see this a lot. I think there are a lot of people who work very hard to craft images as givers. And if you look at the way that they, they dole out blame and take credit, it doesn't really follow the, the value system that, that you would hope for. All right. Well, another lateral move to uh, the topic of meditation, which uh, <laughs> oh, no. I, I warned you about. So you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, which was widely considered a broadside against the, the scientific consensus or-, or, or Is the, that how it was viewed? Or the rumors thereof about the utility of mindfulness. And I don't think that's true. No? It's interesting that you say that. Yeah. I, well, so why, why do you think it was perceived that way? Because well, it wasn't my intent. I, think, I don't think we have to get into the weeds of that. It's just, it's more- I think what would inform this conversation more is that I heard you do a podcast with my friend Dan Harris, who, who's got the 10% Happier podcast and meditation app by that name. And uh, Dan is, a, is just a, you know, a hardcore evangelist for meditation now because he's, he's found it so useful in his life. So you had a conversation there where your, your basic skepticism about just the whole project, whether there's a there there, came out. 
but it was in your op-ed as well. I mean, you're, basically, the you and I are going to agree here that the science in support of the, the benefits of meditation is thinner than many people would acknowledge who are yeah. relying on it, right? It's being hyped. Yeah, and I think any, any serious scientist will tell you that. I guess the, the better way to put that is that there's a range of kind of quality of science attesting to the benefits of meditation, and some of it is obviously thin, some of it's obviously interesting, but all of it's preliminary, right? And so it's not, I mean, I would put Richie Davidson in the, on the side of obviously interesting, but still preliminary. Yeah. But so to come in at the, the ground floor here, I think you were talking about with Dan having met so many people who were, whose lives had, they, th- you know, they imagined had been changed by the practice of meditation and the, the evangelism was starting to rub you the wrong way such that you you uh you know your your look at the at the data coupled to the personal enthusiasms of annoying people caused <laughs> you to say all right enough is enough well you know I'm not interested in this so how would it, I don't know when you recorded this this conversation with Dan it must yeah. have been about a year ago it was but, in the fall I think okay, actually okay. so uh yeah give me your give me your hot take on meditation <laughs> and then and then uh, I will try to perform an exorcism on you oh well I apparently I'm uh I didn't know I was possessed. This yeah. is interesting. You're, you're, you're possessed by doubt. <laughs> I think we should all be possessed by doubt yeah. more often. Isn't, isn't that a precept of science? Uh, up to a point. Even without having an experience in it, I think there are things that you could understand conceptually that would make it seem obviously of greater interest that whether or not you, it, was, it was something that you wanted to act on. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll get there. I just want to get your up-to-the-minute take, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll say a few things that, yeah. that Dan didn't say in his, in his exchange with you. I believe that. I think I think it could be more interesting to me than I let on. I think I just I have I have a natural skepticism of anything that has evangelism behind it. And I think my responsibility as a social scientist is to look at the evidence and, you know, ask in a in a balanced way, what do we really know? And yeah, I actually started reading mindfulness research in nineteen ninety nine before the, you know, the make mindfulness yeah, movement really, yeah. took off. And one of the first observations that I thought was interesting is you can become mindful without meditating. You can at least create a state of mindfulness by teaching people to think in conditionals rather than, rather than absolutes. And you could also get there by, by teaching people to, to just notice the things in their environment, right? So I felt like my, my early assumption was we ought to decouple meditation from mindfulness because there are many ways of cultivating and focusing attention on the present. There are many ways of learning to be non-judgmental. And meditation might be one path there, mm. but like any complex system that's governed by equifinality, right, that there are multiple routes to the same end, maybe there are other ways you could get there too. So that's kind of where I came in. And then as all these people started saying, well, I mean, I, I felt like I was, I was getting judged. <laughs> like, what, so what right. kind of meditation do you do? I don't. Well, wait, I, I'm sorry, what? Are you, you, how, how could you not? What's wrong with you? And, you know, that, that only happens so many times where you think like, huh. I didn't even know that like, that was a virtue to meditate. I just thought it was a practice that some people like in the same way that, you know, some people prefer to go running and others prefer to play basketball, right? I guess, well, you, you, I think what's starting to happen for people is there's this expectation that its benefits have been so obviously demonstrated that it's, it is analogous to physical exercise, yeah. where it's like, wait a minute, you don't exercise at all? You, you don't run, you don't bike, you don't yeah. lift weights? That begins to seem pathological. and. And I would imagine the circles in which you run, you yeah. know, if you're going to you know, conferences like TED or wherever, you're surrounded by people who would assume that it's, the benefits are so clear-cut that yeah. you're taking some kind of stand for not being interested at yeah. all. Yeah, no, which, which obviously was not my intent. I just, right. I think it's never, 
I mean, I've, I've tried it. It's never, I probably had not been taught a way to do it that worked for me. It had never, um, it never just felt like something that was, that I wanted to make time for. And all the, my, my big beef was that aside from the fact that I think, you know, the claims far outstrip the science, you know, how many randomized controlled trials do we really have looking at isolating meditation from all of the different components of activity that you might be able to get without meditating? And then how objective are the outcomes and how, how consistently do they work? Is it effective for most of the people in most of the situations? I feel like there are a lot of open questions there, you know, but I, I, don't, I don't disbelieve that. I, I think it's probably helpful for most people in most situations if the goal is to reduce stress or to cultivate mindfulness. I just, I, I looked at that and I said, okay, but we see the same effects on stress reduction of exercise. We see very similar effects on right. mindfulness of some of these other activities that I mentioned. And so my feeling had been, I, I like to use my time productively. I'm not someone who's good at quote unquote doing nothing. And I realize that meditation is not doing nothing. But when I compare it to reading, where I feel like I get some of the same benefits, I'd rather read. Mm. When I compare it to exercise, I'd rather spend you know, an extra 10 minutes or one hour a day doing more exercise than I would meditating. And by the way, I can, you know, I can think and reflect while I do that. And so I was just reacting to the, the, the force, the, the feeling of being forced to do this one activity that I think the science suggests it's probably helpful, but I don't, I don't feel like I need it. And the funny part to me was when I would ask people, well, why, why, are, you so, why are you so evangelistic about it? And the, the common answer was, well, you know, I, it helps me quiet my monkey mind and all the chatter. I've never heard voices in my head. I, I, don't, I don't know what a monkey mind is, and I don't think I have one. Right. So the, well, this is the interesting part. This is the part that made me think we had to talk about this. Good. Tell me. So how to put this? Well, I guess one more question. Have you ever done psychedelics? Have you ever done no. LSD or psilocybin? Never or? touched a drug. Okay. Interesting. Well, that, that's a relevant variable here. So, so one thing a real psychedelic like LSD or psilocybin would do, or a, you know, what's generally called an empathogen like MDMA would do, is convince you that there are states of consciousness that are radically different than the one you tend to inhabit. Right? I believe that already. But depending on the experience you have, if you have a, a certain kind of experience on any of these compounds, this experience would convince you that there are normative states of consciousness so that you are, in some sense, more yourself rather than less yourself hmm. and more in touch with, with important truths rather than less in touch, right? I'm more so, skeptical of that. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is a, a hypothesis or, I mean, this is a description of an experience that many people have had. And my hypothesis is that you would have that experience, right? That's so, fascinating. So I'm, I'm, you can take that as a recommendation to take <laughs> drugs under the right conditions. So Are you licensed? This comes with no liability on my part. <laughs> I, I, but I, I say that because I, I'm, I'm definitely someone who certainly at, at age 18 thought all religion was bullshit. All claims about spiritual experience were bullshit. There's just the material universe, obviously. That's best understood by science. And while I might have paid lip service to the idea that it's possible to radically transform your mind, I wouldn't have known what I was acceding to there. And, right. and yeah, I mean, while I, I had been drunk, I had smoked pot, I had, I had altered my consciousness in various ways. So I would have, and I, I know what it was it's like to fall asleep and dream. So I mean, obviously, I would have acknowledged that, there, that consciousness gets perturbed and it goes through various changes, the, the contents change. But you know, the prospect of experiencing unconditional love, say, right? I mean, really, not just sort of. That would have either seemed far-fetched 
you know, the testimony is is just a deliberate fraud meant to start a cult or a religion. <laughs> you know, some guy in aviator sunglasses is is making claims about his experience that are not true, and it's not an accident that he's you know sleeping with his, his right. with the wives of of his devotees. And if you had taught me to meditate, then I'm reasonably sure that I would have sat down, closed my eyes, tried to follow my breath, and found the whole project pretty uninteresting pretty quickly, and just felt, I don't know what people are talking about. I'm not good at it. There's no there there. I mm -hmm. prefer to ride bikes or practice martial arts or whatever. Sure. And it really was, for someone as lumpen as me, it really it was a drug experience that got me to just look over a fence I didn't even know was there mm -hmm. and see a landscape of mind that proved, if, if it proved nothing else, it proved that it is possible to have a radically different experience in ways that were normative, right? And so that when I when I collapsed back into my habitual way of being in the world, it seemed pathological. You know, it seemed like it seemed like okay, now I need a path. Mm -hmm. Now I need to figure out if there's anything I can do with my attention, with my ethics, with my conceptual understanding of of life, or with you know pharmacology. There's got to be a way to improve this situation, right? Yeah. So that's Claim number one is that it, it may, there, there are many of us who, unless we're, for whatever reason, forced to try long enough and hard enough to practice, it's possible we just don't, we don't see that there's, there's a there there. And that's, and. Consider me unenlightened then. Yeah. I mean, so, and <laughs> so I, I, I float that for you as a, um, one hypothesis, but the other is that, so your sense that you don't have a monkey mind and you don't get distracted, here's another empirical claim I would just put put out to you is guaranteed to be a false one. Like if I put you in solitary confinement and gave you the practice, you know, like all you can do, you can't watch television, you can't read, you can't, you can't distract yourself, but you can meditate and here's how, right? Mm -hmm. And so that now we're now now the goal is to pay attention to your breath. And every time your mind wanders into thought, you would you pay attention to your breath. You might initially feel that this is boring. This is this is you're restless. This is this is maybe hard to do. But you would, given what you've said thus far, you would very likely think you're doing it much more successfully than you in fact are. Right. So mm -hmm. you would think like, oh, I, if I asked you, you know, for a post mortem on the last ten minutes of meditation, you'd say, well, yeah, I was following my breath for like five minutes. I got distracted a little bit, then I came back, and the last three minutes I was following my breath. No way that's true. And if you spent 18 hours a day doing that for a month, at the end of the month, hmm. you would be noticing just this torrent of white noise, uh, of discursivity, which is preventing you from staying on the breath for, I mean, you know, depending on how concentrated you can get, you, you could stay on the breath for some period of time. But staying on for a minute without getting distracted is a heroic feat. I mean, you've never- you think? Absolutely. Because you're, you're talking to the guy who like wrote my undergrad thesis when my roommates were throwing a party and did not even notice. So, well, I, I would say to you that this is easily testable. And if, and if you have sufficient concentration, concentration meditatively is a very specific thing. To get lost in your work is, is one thing, and it, it is a kind of concentration. And a lot of the pleasure we get from being totally immersed in anything is actually the generic pleasure of just having a concentrated mind. It's just, it's intrinsically pleasurable to be focused on anything, regardless of what that thing is. But if you could pay attention to anything without getting lost in thought for minutes at a time, so if you just sat down and did that now, mm -hmm. there would be 
neurophysiological, psychological, uh, phenomenological correlates of that, mm -hmm. which are very drug-like. You know, it's like the the immense pleasure that people get when their mind gets a little concentrated. Like, I mean, the, the, you know, this bliss and rapture and a feeling of expansiveness in the mind where, you know, your body disappears and consciousness mm -hmm. seems like just a vast void. And the only thing that appears might be the thing you've been paying attention to, let's say the breath. Right. And even that might disappear and you're just, there's just nothing but pure consciousness. An extraordinarily pleasurable, psychedelic-like experience. If you were in fact as concentrated as you imagine yourself to be, <laughs> that would be very accessible to you. That's interesting. Right. And so that, again, this is another empirical claim yeah. that is testable. Yeah, it is. And when I hear you describe that, Sam, it sounds to me like you're, you're basically talking about a flow state. It's more than a flow state in the sense that Let's get back to flow states in a second. Another empirical claim I would give you is if you are able to really be mindful with sufficient concentration, you would notice that mindfulness is synonymous with a loss of a sense of self. Mm -hmm. right? So the, fe the feeling of being a self, being the subject in your head, and being the thinker of your thoughts and being the sort of the agent in the middle, kind of riding around in your body that is most people's default <laughs> position. That goes away each time you're clearly aware of anything from the point of view of mindfulness. Right. And so it, it's, analogous, it's analogous to a flow state in the sense that flow does have this character of losing yourself in the act, yeah. like whether it's athletically or in terms of even a cognitive task. Yeah, even uh, driving a car. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have you ever driven somewhere and not remembered but, the turns you made? But that, but that is different. That that is more the the hallmark of distraction. That's more you're lost in thought, and you don't even know it. You're just thinking about whatever you're thinking about, and yet that's still compatible with driving a car because so much of that can, has been taken offline and doesn't require conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. But no, the flow state is more when you're the thing you're paying attention to. I mean, it usually has a major sensory motor component, like you're surfing or your you know, right. athletic events are very easy here. So, I mean, let's say you're you're shooting a basketball. When you have no conscious thought about how to do it, you're not worried about errors. You're completely in sync with the motor task, and there's an intrinsic pleasure there. It's like you're not. It's like your thoughts aren't getting in, in the way of your of, of your mm -hmm. performance, right? And this this can become especially salient in golf, where people get you know swing thoughts. I don't know if you ever play golf, but it's never. Like, yeah, it's an awful sport. I'd rather uh, meditate. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, there the intrusion of thought, the difference between being in in flow and being like I think that in the in a round of golf, like a four hour round of golf, I think you make something like one point two seconds of contact with the ball. It's like that. Like the actual sport yep. is is achieved in something like a second, and so. The vulnerability of, of that to thoughts that are not helpful is immense. So the difference between flow and mindfulness is in flow or in being lost in your work, I do think people lose their sense of self, Yeah. right? And yeah, so, that's one of the main Csikszentmihalyi findings, right, is that, that you lose track of time and place and, yeah, even your ego. Yeah, yeah. And the neural correlates of that, I think, are, are fairly clear now in that what we call the default mode network is what comes online when people are between tasks, mm -hmm. when they're not, when they don't have outwardly directed attention. That's why it's called the default mode. And it's reduced when people are meant to focus on something or asked to focus on mm -hmm. something. It's also reduced in meditation. It's also reduced with psychedelics. But the difference is 
there's not a recognition of the loss of self when you're in flow or when you're lost in your work. It's always retrospective. It's you're like right. you're, 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 there's it, no metacognitive cognitive awareness. Yeah. And with mindfulness, with real mindfulness, and this is not the mindfulness that most people are practicing in the beginning. So the most of the people are coming up to you at Davos saying, I can't believe you don't practice mindfulness. These are not people who have enough experience in meditation to, for, the, for this to be true of them for the most part. But there's a, a metacognition with mindfulness where the loss of self is the thing you're paying attention to, right? It's no other thing. Hmm. And anything else that could be part of your experience in that moment, whether you could just be staring at your hand or hearing the sound of a bird or following the breath or, or watching television, whatever it is, that as long as you're clearly aware of anything, any of the contents of consciousness, anything is, a good, is as good as anything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could, and it could be an unpleasant thing. It could be nausea, right? Like you could just be, you could feel nausea arise. You could notice that it's unpleasant and recognize that there's no self that knows that. There's just the pure knowing of nausea. And there is a kind of equality of all experience that becomes, and, and this is, can sound you know, subversive of much of what we care about, but it becomes its own source of well-being. Like there's a well-being that's intrinsic to the nature of consciousness that is not predicated on the contents of consciousness being one way or the other. Right, and that's mm -hmm. where it becomes a kind of it becomes a kind of refuge where you can find your well-being before anything happens, before anything changes. So, like if you know whatever it is, you're sick, you're going to the doctor, you're hoping to get better, you're worried about what you might have, and you know again, real mindfulness gives you the power in that moment to first of all notice thoughts as thoughts, right? So your worry is being conveyed by the thought you just didn't notice arise, mm -hmm. and you can then become interested in the emotion of anxiety, feel the anxiety as pure energy, right? It it, for the moment of making pure contact with it in that moment, it loses its psychological import. It right. just becomes pure physiology, right? Sure. And then your, your actual state of consciousness is just acceptance and interest and openness, right? So you can become psychologically free of anxiety even while the physiology is still there. So your, your freedom in that moment Sure. Isn't actually predicated on getting rid of anxiety, right? So then th that's how it can be said that mindfulness isn't a matter of changing your experience. It's a matter of just being aware of what, whatever your experience is. Right. And yet doing that in any kind of sustained way does change your experience. So I mean, th I, this was a, a very long ramble on the topic of mindfulness, but I, I would just say to you that one empirical prediction I would make for you is that if you could be as concentrated as you, as you think you are in this domain, you would very, very quickly have an experience that would be right. super interesting to you. I like how you're trying to use my concentration superpower as a weapon against me. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this is this is one this has is to use technique. use the weapon in hand. Hey, I mean, at minimum, it makes the case that I should be able to to spend less time getting to the point where yeah. I figure out whether it's useful. But all you need is five minutes in, in that case. So I'm curious about two things that yeah. that are interesting in the way that you articulate this. One is why it's so important to you to lose agency because. To me, getting to that state, it would be much more desirable to be able to control it. So I'd say, for example, if we take anxiety, mm. um, I'd much rather practice cognitive reappraisal and say what, what I often do when I feel anxious is, okay, I know that this is a physiological response. I know that I have the choice about how I interpret it. And so I can interpret it as anxiety, which means that there's some uncertain event in the future that I'm worried is not going to go well. Or as a former student of mine has shown in some really interesting research, I could reframe that as excitement. And say uncertainty yep. means there could be a good outcome as well as a bad outcome. 
And so, you know, all, all I'm feeling is physiological arousal, right? And I have a choice then to say, all right, you know, yeah, like maybe I'm nervous, maybe I'm excited. Whatever it is, it's just a, it's a, a body, that, excuse me, it's a bodily reaction that's millions of years of evolution favored, right? Yeah. And I don't need to let that have any power over me. I would rather, I do that often, right? I would rather get there through conscious practice than I would say, okay, I've got to spend a whole bunch of time focusing on my breath and doing this, this meditation exercise in order to develop a skill that I could practice without any of that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I, I would say that reframing, I think, is an essential skill that does something different. And so it really is a both and recommendation here. So I, I would say that there are cases where reframing, I, mean, I would actually put there's basically three remedies here, each of which is important. So one is just, well, let's take anxiety around public speaking, which is, you know, I think you and I both have experienced. And I mean, I was, I was pathologically afraid of public speaking you know, early in life. And so this is a very common fear. So I, I would say there are three things that, that a person could do here. They're all useful. They address the problem at different levels. And none is a substitute for the others. And I would say for this, mindfulness is the, the least important, right? So mindfulness is, a, is more important, I would say, across the board. But, but here, uh, I think you can see the difference. So mindfulness will allow you to truly accept whatever's arising in your experience, right? And so if, if, so if you get anxious every time someone says, okay, now you got to go out on stage, or if you're just thinking about it, you know, a month hence and, and you're, you're getting anxious, mindfulness will allow you to become truly equanimous with that feeling of anxiety. Mm -hmm. But just the nature of, of your mind is such that there's no way you're going to be perfectly mindful. In fact, most of your time, even while trying to be mindful, you're not going to be mindful. You're, just, you're still going to be thinking about the thing that worries you. And in the best case, you'll be punctuating that with clear moments of equanimity and freedom, but the anxiety is going to keep coming, right? And so the reframing that you just described gives you a, we know that, so, that, that the signature of the, the negativity of a state like anxiety is largely the conceptual frame we put around it, because as you point out, it's so f physiologically similar to a state like excitement, right? Yeah. So in, in one case, I'm excited because we're yeah. going on a roller coaster. And in another case, I'm anxious because I have to give a speech. They both feel like butterflies in my stomach. Why do I hate one? And why did I pay $100 for the other or whatever it was? And I've been <laughs> a long time since I've been on a roller coaster. So, <laughs> so the reframing can kind of snap you out of the whole problem. And there's, there's, there's more reframing to do than that. You can, you can think about this was you know, the, perhaps the lone insight of philosophical existentialism. You can reframe the past. I mean, you can have something that embarrasses you from the past, that is a, you know, a failure that, sure. is, that has wounded you, that it seems to be distorting your relationship to the future. And you can just think of that in a new way. Like, well, you know, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't have all the opportunities I have now. I wouldn't have met my wife, but for the fact that I was the schmuck who did this thing then. And there's some way in which you can, you can build a new apparatus to move forward, even with something that, you, that seemed objectively bad for you. But the third thing is just, you can get more experience, in this case with public speaking, yeah. and have enough good experiences doing it such that you don't feel anxiety anymore. Which is the route that I went, and I suspect you did too. Yeah, yeah. And mindfulness is definitely not a substitute for that. Because I was the person who had a lot of experience meditating, had a real 
fear of public speaking, but I had, I, d- I had done a lot of my meditating before I ever had an opportunity to, to speak publicly. And when I was confronted with the opportunity to speak, I was still anxious. I was able to be mindful of my anxiety, but absent actually having experience doing it, I was going to be anxious every time I had to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like it, the, there was no substitute for the, yep. for the positive experience. But to answer your initial question, it's not, it's not about control because, I mean, I'm interested in not suffering unnecessarily. I'm, I'm interested in, in well-being, but I'm also interested in what's true, right? So it's not like I can't pretend to think I can control things that, that can't be controlled or that I, I think I have a self when I don't have a self or like, what is consciousness like empirically if you can pay sustained attention to it? There's a first-person component to scientific epistemology, which is virtually undeveloped in the West, and it was in, it was developed in the East, outside of a scientific worldview. Right. right. So you have you know people who spent their ten thousand hours or their forty thousand hours training attention in a specific way, and really coming into contact with a certain strand of empirical reality in a way that other people don't, but for using their attention that way. But it's being communicated within the, the worldview of 2,000-year-old religious yeah. architecture. So I would just put it to you that it should be scientifically interesting. I mean, if you, you may not accept my initial claim here, but that w- would be easily testable by you. It should be scientifically interesting that it is so hard to pay attention to anything. Right. And no no matter what the stakes, like I would literally, I would take this bet with anyone. And and the moment we have, we may actually have this, but perhaps not in a way that could be truly relied upon. But the moment we have a neuroimaging sequence or some other marker of this type of concentration, such that an outside reference point could could signal to you, you just got distracted. Right. Then it would be an amazing experience because then you would find that no one you know could pay attention to anything for 10 seconds. <laughs> sounds like your next app. Yeah, yeah no, but, no, that would be, yeah. You I'm, know, what, what I find fascinating about this, though, is that I, I honestly feel like I have the opposite goal. So we, one of the, I think one of the things we know about productivity is that it's helpful to have high attentional filters, right? If, you, if you're good at keeping distractions out, you tend to get more done. You're more focused. You use your time more efficiently. You have fewer switching costs. But creativity is often the opposite, right? It comes from having low attentional filters, from being open to unexpected leaps and connections and more parallel processing. Right. And I feel like the biggest barrier to my own creativity is that my attentional filters are in general too high. And I would like to be more distractible because when I get excited about an idea or I have a vision for what I want to write, I basically sit down and I execute it in almost overly, it's overly linear. Yeah. And so to me, the, the, the promise of, of mindfulness is, is sort of something that I, I feel like I overdo. I don't want to concentrate as much. I want to be, I want to be more open to, um, to daydreaming. I want to be more receptive to, to, hey, you know, somebody just asked me a question that's not on the path that I was trying to move in this project, but I want to have the acuity of peripheral vision to, to make that pivot. And I, I guess you could say, well, mindfulness is about noticing in the present, and then therefore I'll get better at it. But I was just curious, what do you think of the idea of wanting to be more distractible? as somebody who feels like I concentrate too much. Mindfulness is not a matter of blocking thought. So here, here's another prediction for you. If you put yourself in a context like a retreat where the goal was to do nothing but pay clear attention to the present moment. No, of course, you would let, you would let those in. Well, so yeah, thoughts, thoughts 
arise incessantly. It's only with extreme states of concentration that they get suppressed at all, and those are just transitory states. So, And the goal is not to get rid of thoughts. The goal is simply to actually notice thoughts as they arise, as, as more appearances in consciousness. Yeah. So now in the context of a retreat, given that this is such a difficult task, you've essentially made a rule with yourself, I and mean, this is what defines a retreat, that there's nothing worth thinking about. Like you're not going to follow, th- the moment you notice a thought is a thought, you're going to watch it unravel and then come back to, to, the truth is that for the longest time in a person's practice, the arising of a thought is synonymous with distraction. You don't, you don't, you don't notice it arise. It just becomes yeah. you. And it, you get sort of get on the thought train. And then after a few seconds or minutes, you realize, oh, I was supposed to be meditating. I'm actually sitting here in a meditation hall with my legs crossed with a hundred <laughs> people. And I thought I would, you know, I'm, I'm busy, you know, thinking about my career or my wife or whatever it was. So given that for the longest time, thought is synonymous with distraction, it can seem like thought is the enemy and that meditation, successful meditation is a matter of get, getting rid of thought. That's only true in, in classical concentration practices, which, are, which mindfulness isn't. So mindfulness is really just a matter of stepping far enough back so that you can notice everything that's arising, thoughts, moods, sensations, whatever it is, without blocking anything. And then here's a, I don't know if this is the third prediction or the fourth prediction for you, but if you put yourself in the context of a retreat like that, your experience would be of a supercharging of your creativity. You would have the best ideas you've ever had. And then the frustration would be, oh, fuck, I, I should be writing <laughs> I need this. to write them down. Yeah, yeah like, I, like <laughs> Get this, me out of the this, retreat. Yeah, yeah, this is, <laughs> and I've had several failed retreats where it's like, all right, I understand what the game is here, but I actually need to write this. Like, I'm going to take a month and write. I've actually left retreats or they've, I've converted them into writing retreats. And it is, it's a very, very common experience. If, if a person works in any kind of intellectually or, or artistically creative space at all, what you get is just this increasing temptation. I believe that. that I mean, it almost seems like, like an extended, more planned version of taking a shower, right? Where where you're, you've, you've suddenly opened up access to lots of right. ideas that otherwise don't make their way in. I wonder, though, why is it important to you to change my mind about meditating? Oh, I mean, it's, it's not, it's just that, I mean, you, you're a, a public figure having public conversations about this, and I would just, obviously, I have a, my dog in this fight is that I just think it's, it's important that people, you included, have the best ideas in any space. But this, this is something that I consider much more my wheelhouse than many other things, right? right? So this is like, it's, totally analogous to, you know, if you had heard me on another podcast talking about organizational psychology or whatever it it is, and saying things that were clearly based on my either misapprehension of it or my lack of experience or my having had a bad experience with somebody who, you know, you knew was a fraud or whatever it was, (laughs) and you just want to course correct. But in this case, it has the added element to it, which is the source of all the evangelism you've heard, both, you know, wise and unwise, that on some fundamental level, this is a key to reducing psychological suffering. You know, I tend to emphasize the intellectual interest of it. Like, it's, a, it's just fascinating to understand what consciousness mm-hmm. is like from the first-person side. But the real sales pitch for meditation traditionally is this is about suffering and the end of suffering. This is about understanding why you suffer psychologically. And there may be some exceptions to this, but there are rounding error on, on the, the main case, which is if you're suffering, you're lost in thought. To some degree, this is true even of extreme physical pain. It's like the, the, the experience of pain being 
unbearable is a kind of illusion where, because the pain that has arrived in the present moment, you've already borne, right? It's like you're, what, you're, what you're actually experiencing here is your massive resistance to the pain and your, your, all the cognition that's going toward, how do I get rid of this? How do I change this? What does this mean, right? And there are massive framing effects, as you know, with pain, so that you can feel like, if you imagine, this is an example, I, I'm, forgive me, listeners, this is an example I've used many times before, but this is the best one because it's so easily accessed. Just imagine what the, the physical sensations of the hardest workout you've ever done, right? If you woke up in the middle of the night feeling those sensations with a different frame, it'd right? Be brutal. Yeah, but, but but the would, workout was fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'd, you would, you'd call 911, you'd get the ambulance there, right? So the meaning you attach to, to it does a tremendous amount. So, But with physical pain, if you change the frame or take the frame away, there's so much fear about the next moment. I mean, so much of it is about yeah. I, can't, I can't bear this another moment. Yep. You've already borne it in this moment. And there are experiences you can have in meditation where it is amazing the level of equanimity you can achieve even with extraordinary physical pain. There are, point, there are experiences in meditation where you can't tell whether, you know it's extreme, but you can't tell whether it's extreme pain or extreme pleasure. It's like that the valence just gets huh. erased. That's, a very, that's setting the bar very high. I don't want to get, give people the sense that if you're in extreme physical pain, you should just be mindful and not not solve the problem. I mean, I, I take Advil as quickly as anyone else. But when you think of the inevitable suffering that we all experience in life and how much being lost in thought is the substance of that, you know, I, I just think it's, I mean, it, it is a generic recommendation I would make to anyone, not just you, that you, you look into this. And, you know, just so just having heard you talk about it is the thing that has prompted me. Got it. So, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think I would disagree with with the basic premise. I just think, as a as a social scientist, I mean, my my main motivation for for raising the conversation was to say, hey, let's let's not evangelize in ways that don't track with what we actually know. And you know, you you said, I, I think we read the evidence, probably have read a lot of the same evidence and drew similar yeah. conclusions about it, right? Which is, it's pretty preliminary. It's not that clear. I mean, one of, to me, one of the most basic issues in in meditation research is placebos. Right, I, it's very possible. Well, well that, it's not not just meditation research, but the placebo effect is so, so strong in any research. But there are domains where it's easier to prevent a placebo effect, right? Yeah. And it's it's very hard. I mean, you'd, you'd almost in order to to rule that out, you'd almost have to try to convince people temporarily that meditation would be bad for them and still show benefits of it. And I think that the very fact that people are conscious of potential benefits, you know, be, begins to make it a very difficult thing to study scientifically. And then I add in the replication crisis. And think, okay, if you look at where the science of meditation is today, my guess is there aren't very many researchers who started out studying it with a neutral view or even with a skeptical view. And right. so I think we have a huge file drawer problem that there are a lot of researchers who are passionate believers in meditation who have not published any of their negative results. They've only published positive results. And anytime I look at an area like that, I just get skeptical, right? And I say, okay. Yeah. And then uh, you, I'm sure you saw the Van Damme et al. critique saying, hey, wait a minute, the you know, the, the science here is, is so early that we, sh we should not be making recommendations yet. And you look at that and you think, okay, this, this is an area that really needs more systematic, rigorous attention. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. And, you know, there's some other caveats here. I mean, there's a difference between meditating for 10 minutes a day or an hour a day and going into a silent retreat for, for a month, right? Yes, so there, of course. So there, there definitely... While you know that that's been the gateway to some of the most important experiences of my life, going on silent retreat, 
it's clearly not something that everyone should do. You know, that it would no. be contraindicated for for and and you know, out of every hundred people who do it, there's always one who is a casualty of that experience because it's a real crucible. But that would be true of you know intense physical exercise too. Sure. People who just shouldn't jump in at the deep end of the pool. I guess it, there's a segue here to one of your other books. I, I haven't read the book, but I saw your several of your conversations you had with Sheryl Sandberg. You guys wrote this book together, Option B, and well, perhaps to, to say what that what that book was and 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 how it how you came to write it. Yeah. So, gosh, about six years ago now. I got to know Cheryl through her husband, Dave Goldberg, who is one of the most generous givers I have ever met. And four years ago now, Dave passed away suddenly. And Cheryl obviously was devastated. And she she had asked me pretty early on, how do I make sure that my kids are okay now that they've lost their father? And I guess, you know, most people don't have that many psychologist friends. So we started a conversation right. about, you know, what what does it take to build resilience in other people? And, you know, you fast forward a bunch of months and it turns out she's been journaling and she's written over 100,000 words about grief and loss and how to find strength in the face of adversity. And, you know, the only thing I can think to do is to say, look, here's the evidence I've read about, you know, how you build strength in yourself and in others. And eventually, you know, people just kept asking, you know, if she, she'd written a Facebook post about what she learned from loss that apparently resonated with a lot of people and, and they asked for more. And finally she said, okay, you know, I've written the book already, but I don't want it to just be my story. I want people to learn from the, the psychological science that we've been talking about all these months. And I also want to highlight how this is true in lots of different kinds of adversity and lots of other people's experiences. And so mm. we ended up writing Option B together to try to really tackle the question of, of how do you build resilience in the face of adversity? And you know, I think when we wrote it, we were very much thinking, look, we, we all face setbacks in our lives. Some are, some are major, some are minor. And if, if we could learn how to get better at facing them, that would be great. The reaction has been much more that it's, uh, I guess, in a way, there's a big self-help section in every bookstore. Yeah, It really yeah. bothers me that there's no help others section in huh. any bookstore. Nice. And I think the feedback we've gotten is that you know, when somebody else close to you is struggling or suffering in some way, whether it's a, a coworker or a friend or a family member, a lot of us freeze. We don't know what to say, so we say nothing. And therefore, it's, it suggests that we don't care. We don't know what to, what to offer. And so we say, well, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do, which puts the burden on the person who's suffering then to, to know what they want and to feel comfortable asking for it. And so I think for me, a lot of option B is, is actually letting people to know that the worst thing to do when somebody else is suffering is to not act. And that sometimes just specifically showing up and doing something mm. is, is better than, than just asking or offering. What is the option B of the title? So. Uh, Cheryl was talking with a friend of hers, Phil, who was very close to Dave. And she said, look, I, you know, I, I miss Dave. I want Dave back. I think as anybody who's gone through loss naturally feels. And Phil said, look, Dave was option A. Option A is not available anymore. So mm. the only thing you can do is kick the shit out of option B. Right. And I think that that it became a little bit of a rallying cry for her family. And I've watched a lot of people pick up that theme and say, look, I had an option A that's gone in my life. And now the best thing I can do is make the most of the alternative. And, you know, I think you could probably get to that same point through Buddhism, through meditation. We happen to get there through psychology. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was tremendously impressed with her in the conversations you had with her around the launch of the book. I think they were probably a year ago, the ones I saw on YouTube. 
Um, she, one, she, she was at Wharton with you, maybe it was two years ago. Two years ago, yeah. And I, I was somewhat chastened because, you know, I've been, I've never met Cheryl, but I've been very critical of Facebook and social media in general on, on this podcast of late. And so to recognize there are people behind these corporations uh, or to be reminded of that fact is always good. But she had a, a lot of wisdom clearly born of grief that she was sharing in, in a very beautiful way in, in that Wharton event. And the one thing she said, and this is actually, there are several points of contact between the benefits of mindfulness and this. I mean, it's insofar as mindfulness really is a remedy for psychological suffering, well, then it's a remedy for the suffering of grief. Yeah. But there was one thing she said, she was talking about having 11 days left to live. Like she said, like, I think on the, as the, as the first anniversary of her husband's death approached, I think, you know, it was, it was 11 days out. And she or someone close to her said, you know, at this point, Dave had 11 days left, right? And it was just a very vivid reminder of the preciousness of life. And she was basically asking the audience to consider, you know, their lives through that lens. You know, yeah. how would you live if you only had 11 days left? Because the, obviously the truth is none of us knows, even if we have 11 days, and, and we're always in this position of just pulling another ticket out of the, the, the machine, not knowing how many tickets are in there. and. She said, it's not a matter of just partying for 11 days. It's not a matter of just not doing any of the things you are doing now because you have all these other things you need to, you can't live that way, right? And that's always been an interesting tension because, because when you're thinking about living the most fulfilling possible life, yeah. it does seem like thinking about the uncertainty of life, the, 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 the inevitability of death and the, the uncertainty of how much time you have left, that consideration seems like it it should align you with all of the the choices and and incentives and variables that would cause you to live the the wisest most fulfilling possible life but if you shorten the time frame enough i mean certainly to 11 days is pretty short yeah you think okay well fuck i mean i'm not i'm obviously not going to answer yeah. my email i'm not going to check my email i'm not going to get the car fixed i mean there's all kinds no. of normal things you're not going to do you go to like a yolo you only live <laughs> once yeah right right carpe diem yeah yeah <laughs> like but the truth is you can't you can't be deranged by it. What you want to do is connect with your life, whatever it is, as fully as possible. And yeah. so you just want you the antithesis of that is being distracted by your, you know, fear of death and your craving for all of the temporary things that aren't going to matter in light of death. Right. And so having your priorities straight is actually having a mind that can connect with whatever opportunity or whatever relationship or whatever you whatever you have now and and this was to Cheryl's point that's not incompatible with being able to plan for the future intelligently and I mean, yeah. she, was, she was talking to a, a an ocean of undergraduates and and business school students right so it's not you don't have to say oh my god life is short and precious now i have to go live in the woods with you know and, and <laughs> drop acid every day with my friends no you can actually you can put all of the pieces in place that would serve you well for four score and 10 if you get that but you can connect enough every day, every hour, every minute, such that if it ends far too soon, you have lived that the best life possible. Yeah. It's so interesting because it reminds me, I, um, <laughs> a while back, a decade ago, I published a paper with Kim Wade Benzoni on um, mortality salience and how it affects us. Mm -hmm. And I'd been reading all this research on, on terror management theory, uh, right. where I'm sure you're familiar with this evidence. The judges uh, offer harsher sentences when, they, when you remind them of, of death. Yeah. And uh, even, you know, like people 
people who are um, are reminded of their own mortality as opposed to say dental pain they're more likely then to to try to attack somebody who who threatens their worldview by giving them extra hot sauce to right, taste right. which is one of the best ways to study aggression in the lab okay. there's a milgram experiment with hot sauce there's a version of that <laughs> yeah and so you you see all these really negative effects of of mortality salience you know people become kind of more they cling more to their worldviews they get defensive they you know aggress against outgroups and yet there's also evidence that when people start to reflect on their own mortality they become more generous they give more to charity they are more expansive in their worldviews they're more open minded and i was trying to reconcile what what is going on here and what seems to to break down the difference is death anxiety is bad and death reflection is good so if you're terrified of your of your mortality then you spend a lot of time basically trying to fortify the things that that either bolster your self-esteem or your cultural worldview. Right. Whereas with the the kind of equanimity you were describing earlier, if you can take a step back and say, look, you know, I I want to make sure therefore that I've lived a really good life and that I've made choices that I can be proud of that are consistent with a set of values that matter, it's much easier then for for death to kind of I guess lead to more beneficial effects as something you reflect on. And I think this is one of the things that the Cheryl and I really stumbled upon is we were talking about this, this research on post-traumatic growth, which is pretty controversial, but has often shown that when people go through near-death experiences or other kinds of tragedy or trauma, they actually come away better in, in one fashion or another. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say they, they're glad it happened and that they wouldn't you know, undo it if they could, but that very often they come out with a, a greater sense of personal strength saying, you know, if I live through this, I could live through almost anything. They come away with renewed perspective on life, more gratitude for what they have. They end up with more positive relationships with others because they, they appreciate the importance of, of the people who are close to them. And they often uh, see new possibilities and seek out more meaning and purpose yeah. because they're motivated to use that time well. And Cheryl asked this really interesting question. She said, well, if there's post-traumatic growth, if that's a thing, is there such a thing as pre-traumatic growth? Mm. Could I have acquired all this wisdom without having suffered? And I think that, you know, the, at least the place we landed is the answer might be yes. Well, I would think that this exists in many traditions, but Stoicism is the Western philosophy that, yes. that answers most closely to that template. It does. Yeah. And, you know, you see, you see all these interesting kind of everyday examples of this where, you know, people who have gone through loss, then they will write gratitude letters. And you can start doing that tomorrow, right, mm -hmm. to show the people in your life that, that they matter to you. Yeah. And I think that it doesn't, it doesn't take that kind of life-altering event in order to, to get people to want to live a good life. We're just thinking about all the bad things that haven't happened. I mean, the example that I used at one point talking about this was my wife, Annika, and I were driving home having some mediocre conversation about the, the daily indignities of life, no doubt. And there was a homeless person in the middle of, uh, of a very fast stretch of road. This is at night. And the experience of, you know, you're, you're passing a person at like 50 miles an hour, right, where you would never expect a person to be. Yeah. And so the experience was, okay, we almost hit somebody and killed them, right? And where my mind goes when anything remotely like that happens now is, if that happened, what would I pay to get back to exactly where I was a moment before with all of the problems that I was complaining about, yes. you know, in that moment? That for, for me is now it's a kind of practice and it's it's something that you know the stoics recommended although i didn't get it from there i forgot where i got it but it's 
this kind of negative reflection, uh, yeah. a, a counterfactual reflection. Counterfactual yeah. thinking is the easiest route to gratitude. Yeah, right? it's imagining so, it's that like gratitude on tap. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think we do enough of it. I think the uh, the cult of positive thinking that often dominates American society discourages us from doing that. Yeah, right. We're supposed to, we're supposed to be grateful for how great things are. But I think that's often at the end of the tunnel of well, what are all the things that have could have could have gone much worse in this situation that I'm in. Okay, so you you mentioned the replication crisis, which I. I haven't talked about much. I spoke about it with Danny Kahneman at a live event. Maybe I mean I really should at some point do a podcast on it. But so what do you? You're I think you must be much closer to the problem than I am. What is the state of the replication crisis? You might want to summarize what that phrase means in psychology and social science at the moment. Yeah. So a, a lot of us are disturbed that <laughs> some of the classic findings in psychology don't replicate. The samples were very small. The statistical analyses were not as rigorous as they are today. And also the standards were not the same as, as they are today. So it was very easy to, you know, something that, that you saw a lot of psychologists do and that, you know, there was a whole generation that was trained to do this was you'd run an experiment and you'd, you know, try six different treatments and then you have 10 different outcomes that you're measuring. And then you only publish the two treatments that worked on one outcome. Mm -hmm. And there are tremendous degrees of freedom there where statistically by chance alone, you might end up with a significant result and you've not adjusted your... Uh, You've not adjusted your, your confidence intervals or your p-values or however you're gauging significance to account for that. Right. And so, um, so that's called p-hacking, right? Which is the idea that we can kind of shift our standards in order to get the result that we need to publish on. Yeah. It's also the file drawer effect where people are not publishing negative findings. So you have yeah. this false signal. Yeah. I mean, yeah, not, not publishing null results and also not publishing results that, that maybe go against the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the hypothesis they're trying to support. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard, I think, to have a crisis like that in a field like physics, where, where the, the truth in the world is so objective, right? But by definition, in social science, everything we find is contingent. And so, you know, it's very easy to imagine that an effect could be positive or it could be negative. And so, you know, who knows what the truth is? And I think that the replication crisis, I think it's obviously a huge step for the field to, to get closer to what, what actually is true about, you know, the mind and behavior. But I think we're, we're making a couple of mistakes in the way that we, we respond to it. One is, you know, you, you see areas where there's actually a really fascinating classic uh, set of experiments where you're asked to either hold a pencil in your lips or mm -hmm. in between your teeth. Right. And it turns out that the people, well, you, do you know the study? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so doing it between your teeth forces you to smile in, in a way and that should convey this this feeling of of happiness between your lips is a kind of grimace right which should convey what it what would it be disgust or or sadness or yes, right and and so sure enough in the original experiments people who were randomly assigned to hold the pencil between their teeth felt happier than those who held it between their lips and right. that had been replicated a bunch of times and then you come along with a, a more powerful experiment with a larger sample and it doesn't replicate and you say oh no the finding was bunk and then the, some of the original researchers came back and say, actually, you designed the experiment in a bunch of ways that were different from our original conditions. And now our question is, you know, when do we get the effect and when do we not? And to me, that's way too rare in the replication crisis mm -hmm. that, you know, we're trying to find an effect that's true or false. And human behavior is way too complex and messy for there ever to be an effect that's robust across all people in all conditions. And so I think what we ought to be doing is not asking if an effect is real but instead asking when an effect is real. And this is, this is actually what you do in good social science, right? You're supposed to identify the boundary conditions for an effect and say, 
here are the circumstances where it's positive, here's where it, uh, it goes neutral, and here's where it might even turn negative. And I don't think we've done enough of that. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it's, a, it's a missed opportunity for learning. And I think it's very easy for researchers who are playing a gotcha game to say, let me cherry pick a finding that's, that's not very plausible or that was not studied in a very rigorous way. Let me just take it down. When what a real scientist would do is to say, huh, there's something interesting there that might have been true under a set of circumstances. And my job is to find those circumstances. There's a, there's a, there was a psychologist, Bill McGuire, who wrote in the 70s that an experiment doesn't test whether a hypothesis is true. It tests whether the experimenter is a sufficiently ingenious stage manager mm-hmm. to produce the conditions under which the hypothesis is true. And I guess this bothers me. You know, this, this is a big problem in social psychology where you have all these contrived experiments. As an organizational psychologist, I mostly do field research where I go out into an organization and I look at factors that affect job performance. And that's a real finding for real people in their jobs, right, with objective measures that they're evaluated on. And then I might go into the lab to design an experiment to try to, to control the effect and understand what, what, what drives it. And when I look at that, I think, gosh, you know, I, I shift to a different industry or a different organizational culture, and sometimes I find opposite effects. And that's interesting, right? That's, that's something we ought to be investigating, as opposed to saying, huh, well, maybe your original effect wasn't real. You know, I, I guess all of these things can be true, though, right? There are frauds or they are bad experiments or they're, yeah. they're phenomenon that are, are apparently real but are, are not or misunderstood. And then there are these effects that are weak enough or contingent enough yeah. such that all of the variables have to be right for them to appear. And if, if, if it's a non-analogous laboratory, they seem to wash out, yeah. right? And this is true for so many things we study in about the mind. It's like, there's, there's so much that, I mean, to take neuroimaging, which is research I'm closer to, there's only so many things you can do when someone's immobile inside of, of, of a MRI scanner. Yeah. And whether you're studying what people are like out in the world when they're doing the, the analogous act of cognition, some serious thought has to be given to the, the validity of the conclusions you're drawing about you know, life in the world from what happens in the magnet. I guess that the fear is that, for all the reasons you described, much of the literature we've relied on is just bogus, right? Like, it's it's like there is no case where this really is a robust effect given the right variables. No, it's just these people were, they're guilty of confirmation bias or p-hackery or something. Maybe, but I, but I think more often what we're looking at is a case of, of hubris by social scientists to begin with. Right, to claim that anything is true for all people under all circumstances, that's absurd. Right? Right. And even the replications that you do systematically, they involve different people in your samples who presumably have different personality traits and values and life experiences. And that's rarely accounted for when we run a replication. And so I just I, I worry a little bit that maybe sometimes we're overreacting. Right. And immediately when we what we think is a better study falsifies a trail of original studies. Well, one study doesn't, you know, doesn't invalidate a series of 10 or 12, right? You want to you actually look at what are the conditions under which each of those studies were, was done. And you know, I, actually, as an example, you, you and Danny Kahneman had a fascinating conversation when you sat down together. And Danny said something that really surprised him. And I have to ask him about mm-hmm. this because I, I think I strongly disagreed with it. He said, basically, the more surprising a result is, the more skeptical you should be of it. Mm-hmm. And I thought the opposite was true. Because Danny himself has spent his whole career showing the fallibility of our own intuition. Mm-hmm. And now he's saying that we should doubt a result that counters our intuition? No. Well, that's interesting. I didn't read that. I wasn't paying attention to that implication of it. So yeah, I would, I would totally agree. And I think he would agree in 
another context, especially is not so much in his field, but this is a point that many of us have made with respect to kind of fundamental insights into scientific worldview, you know, more of what you get with theoretical physics. It's like anything you're going to discover about the base layer of reality, insofar as you can think you're in touch with it, should be counterintuitive because we know our intuitions have not evolved to track quanta or you know 14 billion <laughs> yeah. year old objects so the very the very big and the very small are not or should be counterintuitive but i think he was saying it's more like the the carl sagan line of you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence right like that yeah. something if, if something is really diverging from the norm on terrain that you wouldn't expect all of your experience to be a poor guide for. I mean, like we, right. we deal with human beings all the time. We don't deal with quarks, yeah, uh, you know, or or, or things moving at the speed of light. So I, I I think that's that's the spirit in which I took it. But I think there's a there's a valid point there. I just think that we also need to we need to correct for confirmation bias, and that means we should allow for a greater degree of surprise than right. maybe that that idea would suggest. So. The experiment you you mentioned about death salience or, or mortality salience, that was a case where when I heard you describe those those antithetical effects, I was very clearly picturing two different groups of people. Like mm. the, and and there's a, at least in my mind, a pretty clear framing effect there where it is analogous to like you know we frame this as this is the doorway to wisdom. You know you know this is the wisdom of Marcus Aurelius and this is how you yeah. can think about mortality and how it can maximize your your wisdom in the present and then a, another group of people who just see death and its contemplation as antithetical to the maintenance of everything they care about and yes. it just it just erodes their sense of well-being being reminded of death is synonymous with them feeling worse right yeah. whereas for those of us with the right frame being reminded of death suddenly amplifies gratitude commitment to higher priority rather than lower priority items, pettiness goes out the window, and the recognition that everyone's going to die just cancels any basis of acrimony between, it's like, like the person who just cuts you off is going to die, right? Like, or how how could you hate them? Yeah, right? probably don't need to have any road rage right <laughs> no, now. No, exactly. Yeah. And there, there, there might be a, an interesting thread to tie that to some of the themes we've already talked about, which is I think about the the Becker book from the early 70s on the denial of death that won yeah. the Pulitzer Prize. And that, that kind of spurred all this research on, you know, in psychology, how do people react to mortality salience? And one of the, the big ahas that came out of that work is we think that one of the functions of self-esteem, the reason we have an ego in the first place, is it buffers against existential anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the fact that I build myself up into an important human being makes me feel like I will survive. Right. And that's also often why we, we cling to organized religions is they, they create a sense of meaning against chaos. And I think that, that you might make the case that one of the reasons that you'd want to meditate is to not need self-esteem or, you know, some arbitrary set of religious principles yeah. in order to deal with that crippling anxiety. Yes. Sold. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's a, to me, a pretty compelling argument to meditate. Shit. Yeah. Okay, so I've got some bonus questions, and then I'll, then I'll get you on. out of here. Okay. If you had one piece of advice for a person who wants to succeed in your field, what would it be? Invest in becoming a great writer. Oh, nice. We're judged on what we write. You can't, if you can't publish papers, if you can't put your thoughts and your studies into words, you, they're never going to see the light of day. That's great. I don't think anyone has ever said that in response to this question, and it is so 
true of almost any field. You know, Sam, as well as I do, probably better than I do, that unclear writing is a sign of unclear thinking. Yeah. What, if anything, do you wish you had done differently in your 20s? In my 20s, I wish I had had more peripheral vision. I feel like I had tunnel vision on a set of projects I wanted to work on and a set of goals I wanted to achieve. And I missed out on some opportunities that weren't quite on track. And Mm -hmm. yeah, like as a simple example, I'm fascinated by how people build their their networks and how they manage a a really complex web of relationships. And I I just barely learned enough to to do network studies where you can map that web of connections. And you know, I'm I'm kind of I'm like barely passable at it. Mm -hmm. And I could have easily spent a couple months becoming quite good at it. And now it would be a tool that I'd use all the time. Right. And you you can't liberate those months now and do it? I could. I think I haven't made it enough of a priority because Mm -hmm. I still have yet to take a sabbatical. LSD, a sabbatical, meditation. We, we, we have your fall. <laughs> You're making my well plans. Hand, yeah. Ten years from now, what do you think you'll regret doing too much of or too little of at this point in your life? I think that I'll regret spending too much time sharing things I already know with people. Hmm, I think there's a, there's a trap of, that you've lived of becoming yeah. an author and a speaker where you get typecast or there's demand for things you've already figured out. Right. And then, you know, you also get pretty good at performing on a given topic. And then people want that. And you start to hear the same questions over and over again. And you kind of shut off the valve of learning. Yeah. Too little, yeah. I guess, is the, the converse of that, which is to say, I want to spend more time exploring things that I don't, under- don't understand and that I haven't thought to study yet. Right. Interesting. Well, that just gave you more acid and more meditation. Oh, I'm really digging so you, my you, own hole here. This is, this is almost susceptible to a Freudian analysis. <laughs> Freud, Freud said psychology back by half a century, in my view. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, well, and ironically, in light of your first answer, it was because he was such a good writer. Oh, he painfully was, good. He was a great writer, and he was so compelling on the page that people ignored the fact that it was pure mythology. Yeah, no no evidence. And also, I mean, some of the ideas are just absurd. Yeah. I, I think he also, he he was so good at coining phrases. Like, I, I, I've used so many times the narcissism of small differences. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's inevitable. You, you got to use that. Disappointing. What book should everyone read? For what purpose? What book should everyone read for some high purpose that everyone should have in hand? Wow. What's, what's, what's an important book that you think you'd be poor for not having read? Gosh, a book and also one that your fans wouldn't have already read. That's the It doesn't have the to be that. Bar. No. It doesn't, doesn't have to be esoteric. I think, I think that's probably important. I guess one of, the, one of the books that really shaped my worldview sort of unexpectedly was, I guess, I'm just trying to think of how to articulate this. I think my worldview is really profoundly shaped by uh, reading Moonwalking with Einstein by Josh Foer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I haven't. I actually have not read that, but I I think you know it's 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 a book about it's by a journalist who you know has a pretty bad memory. Yeah, he, become, he becomes a memory champion. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, wins the American Memory Championships in yeah. a year, and yeah, I think a lot of people read it because they think it's fun and it's interesting to learn the parlor tricks. The big aha for me was our whole sense of identity and self depends on memory. Mm-hmm. And I never realized how deeply who we are is constructed by the things that we happen to remember and forget. And I, I think for me, it, it opened up the possibility that we could actually shift people's values by just changing the way that they remember their lives. Mm. 
Interesting. Have you seen those people who seem to have perfect episodic recall of oh, every day like of their an life? Yeah. Or, well, or, what, oh, you're talking about um, autobiographical. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's epi- yeah. It's autobiographical. So you can say, you know, where were you on June first? 1986. Yeah. And they know, they remember what they were wearing, what was on television. I mean, it was, it's, it's a crazy level of recall. And I mean, there was a, um, I'm not in touch with the actual literature on this, but I just remember there was a, a 60 minutes episode that interviewed some of these people and, yeah. they, and they were quizzing them. Eerie. You know, yeah, yeah. Highly superior autobiographical memory. Right. And they seem to be pretty unhappy though. As a as a group, apparently most of your interactions well, they, are really boring. Well, We've already had this conversation. Well, they see they seem to be experiencing was the uncanny sense that everyone around them was brain damaged. Yeah, like they like the fact that how could you not recall you, the discussion yeah. we had six years ago? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, th- this is a problem I, I get into with Annika. It's like she has she has better episodic recall for many things, not all things. I would remind her, but many things that we've experienced together, so that. She does experience me as having brain damage in those moments that I can't share her <laughs> recollection of this, this thing. Well, at least you know that, though, and you yeah, can defer to her. I, I admit that, but not across the board. <laughs> what negative experience, one you would not wish to repeat, has most profoundly changed you for the better? Huh. I think, you know, I think loss is, is the obvious one. We've talked about that a little bit yeah. already. I think outside of loss, probably the, the one that I would not want to repeat that's that's changed me for the better was it was probably it's actually probably in middle school being uh, dropped by my entire friend group. Oh wow! Basically, some of whom I had I had kind of brought together, and I think they decided I wasn't cool enough for them. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, it was. It yeah. was. But I had I had a couple of other friends who are not part of the group, and then we became really close, and mm-hmm. it it actually kind of freed me up to to start pursuing things that I was interested in that my friend group didn't think were cool. Right, right, interesting. What most worries you about our collective future? Denial of science. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I don't even have words to describe how, how surprising and distressing it is that people can be skeptical of science, but then believe things that are not founded at all. Okay, if you're going to be a skeptic, you should have high, a high bar Welcome for all my facts, world. Yeah. right? Yeah. I know, you live in that world. But, yeah. you know, just take something simple like flat earthers. Yeah. Like well, that... You're, you're going to be skeptical of the best scientists in the world, but you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be so gullible that you buy that we're standing on a Frisbee? Right. Really? Right. Well, that, that's a phenomenon that I, I still can't persuade myself is real. Like, I, I mean, it, it, no. seem, it seems to be real. It seems to be that there really is a cult of people who are, you know, in the year 2019, flat earthers. But... I just, I haven't interacted with it at all, but you get the sense that it's possible that like at one of these conferences, everyone is at the conference just essentially trolling everyone else at the conference. Like, like, <laughs> like it's possible that it's just a- That's more plausible than the alternative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't even know where to start on that, but I, I think the fact that there is- an outlet for finding peers who mm-hmm. can, I mean, we, one of the, the social science effects we know is robust is group polarization. Yeah. Right. You bring people with a, with a somewhat skewed view together and they become more extreme. And the, the fact that it's easier to polarize now when we live in a, a more literate and more informed age mm. to me is really worrying, worrisome, yeah. scary. <laughs> if you could solve just one mystery as a scientist, what would it be? Well, that's an easy one. I think it's it's the one that Annika is tackling in her new book on where does consciousness come from? 
it is yeah. so hard for me to understand, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time studying human behavior, you're a neuroscientist, right? Mm -hmm. How the, the collection of neurons and axons and dendrites and wh whatever combination of processing that happens in our neural networks, how does that give rise to this, I, this, this feeling in the neocortex that I exist and that we're having a conversation right now? And I'm aware of that fact. That, yeah. that, is, that is, to me, the fundamental puzzle. It is inscrutable. If you could resurrect one person from history and put them in our world today, and you could give them the benefit of a modern education if necessary, who would you bring back? Oh, that's easy. Abraham Lincoln. I think he's the one person that could unify a fractured country. And I find myself constantly, I actually, I have a dream that one day Daniel Day-Lewis will partner up with Doris Kearns Goodwin. She will write the speech that Lincoln would give today right. and he'll deliver it. Right. Oh, nice. Yeah, that would be a great piece of performance art. Wouldn't that be fun to watch? Okay, last question. The Jurassic Park question. If we're ever in a position to recreate a T-Rex, should we do it? <laughs> yes. All right, you're in good company. Why, why do you think we should? I just think it's, some things are too much fun to not do. For yeah. fun? Yeah. I'm yeah, doing yeah. it for science. Well, no, but then for science, you could, do, you could recreate something much less fun and less controversial, certainly less dangerous with the same scientific punchline. Yeah, I think that's right. true. I think the T-Rex is really just about the fun. Just ima imagine, imagine some other dinosaur that's not threatening, but is just as legitimate a dinosaur and not at all fun, but still would count as the full resurrection. And you I, had would, to, you I would rather resurrect that dinosaur. Than, than a T-Rex. Like an, an okay. apatosaurus or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. A brachiosaurus, yes. Right. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I want to I want to make sure that the, 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 the dinosaurs, if they get resurrected, don't kill humanity okay. off. <laughs> okay, yeah. So but we can no. have some scientific fun in the process, right? No, no. I, I was there's a crasser level of fun that I was adding to it that is part of the motivation. But yeah, you're you are in good company. Many people say no, but many, many say yes. I believe in the pursuit of knowledge. Yeah. I think we ought to run experiments. Well, listen, Adam, it's great to get you on the podcast, finally. Thanks for having me, Sam. This was a treat. So before you go, tell people where they can find you online, and you're on Twitter, no doubt. Sure. We, we all are, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, for better and worse. Yeah, adamgrant.net. There are some fun assessments where you can, uh, you can actually gauge whether you tend to be more of a giver, taker, or a matcher. You can quiz yourself on your knowledge of, of creativity. And I host a podcast with Ted called Work Life, where I try to figure right. out how to make work not suck. Yeah, great. And... and was that the one you did with Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah, we did a bonus episode last okay. year. Okay. Which was uh, which was a blast. That's great. Thanks again. See you next time. Thank you. Okay.